Audio conversation with Grant Cameron, recorded October 16th, 2012. Uh, Grant Cameron is a Canadian researcher best known for his very exhaustive research into UFOs and the presidency, what the United States president may or may not know about the UFO phenomena. Recently, I heard Grant talking on an audio program called Skeptico, and uh, I gotta say, I was taken aback, because it seems that he has shifted gears quite recently, uh, and is now, um, I don't want to say obsessed, but he's, his research is now focused on the consciousness aspect of the overall UFO phenomena. And this is coming from someone who had, up until quite recently, been, you know, considered a nuts and bolts researcher that, uh, you know, went to dusty archives and, and looked at documentation in order to, to uh, advance his own research. So uh, it, a little bit out of left field to hear that he's, uh, he's looking into consciousness. And I will also add that I recently spoke to Peter Robbins, who is a, a well-known UFO researcher who is uh, probably best known for a work that he co-wrote with Larry Warren, and it's a book titled Left at Eastgate. And um, I knew that that Peter had recently been to a conference where Grant had given a presentation on uh, on this consciousness aspect that he's now you know digging into, and I asked Peter you know like hey you know what was what was Grant's uh, lecture like, and uh, without mincing words Peter said he was blown away by what Grant had to share in his lecture, and and that. You know, so uh, I, I certainly trust Peter's opinion on these kinds of things, and uh, it got me all the more interested in uh, in this interview here. I will add that um, if you feel like this interview isn't quite, uh, you know, to your tastes, I would encourage you to uh, fast forward and listen to about the last third. Uh, that is where Grant talks about some UFO sightings that took place uh, along the American-Canadian border back in about 1975. Uh, these stories are riveting. Uh, he, he, being Canadian, there's a side to him that's pretty funny, i got to say, in a, in a way. Uh, he's got a little quirky demeanor. He talks even faster than I do, which is hard to believe. And... Um, the, the, those retelling of the events that that took place, seeing these uh, these orbs, these orange ground lights, as he called them, uh, I was I was kind of blown away by how uh, intense the his stories were. And then I will also say that he, you wouldn't know it from his presentation, which I've seen. I've seen some. Uh, I think I've seen his lecture on the presidency and UFOs more than once. Uh, I would not have known that there was such a thoughtful side to this guy. And, you, and it took about, I don't know, the, the interview is a little over two and a half hours, which is long, and it took sort of to the, to the end of the interview before that really emerged. So I'm glad I kept him on the line long enough to get, that, uh, to get those insights out of him. Uh, once again, I will suggest that anyone listening to this interview make the effort to listen to the Skeptico interview, which is about an hour long and is linked in the show notes. Please enjoy. Grant, I want to say thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It, it means a lot to me. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. I'm uh, glad to be here and I'm glad to be talking about uh, what we're going to be talking about. It's a little bit different than what I normally talk about. 
Good. And, and I, the reason I contacted you was because I heard an audio interview with you on a on another podcast series called Skeptico, and I was in in the focus of that was. Uh, the consciousness aspect of the UFO phenomenon. Now, that is something that I feel I have been following pretty closely over the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so. And um, and it's something I care about because, uh, partially because it's being underreported in what would be the popular, uh, uh, you know, what would be the mainstream uh, publications or literature, if there is such a thing and such a fringe uh, thing as, yep. as UFOs, um, and that at the same time it is being covered uh, by people in very um, oh sort of small ways through websites and through personal conversations. So it's out there that, that this this uh, aspect of the whole phenomenon. Um, you spoke about uh, having what would amount up as a profound experience. Uh, during a Colin Andrews presentation at last year's UFO Congress, well, excuse me, it would have been this year, 2012 in February in Phoenix, and I would have been sitting in the room there. I thought it was a wonderful presentation. And, um, you know, what was your experience? Okay, well, let me just sort of set up what uh, how I got into this because most people who say if we get a link of this and it's on my website most of the people that come to my website and it's quite a few people will know me more as sort of a presidential historian uh, going after uh, cover up type stuff uh, so I should set the, the uh, how I got into this because I come from more of a, a research background and what actually happened was this is actually where I started this is, goes back to the 1970s. Before I had my UFO sightings, I was into uh, Edgar Casey. I was into, uh, as a teenager, um, near-death studies. I, I, I studied at the University of Manitoba, and I, when I had my UFO setting, I just quit university because, to me, university, it was like I was there. I couldn't figure out, you know, I was doing well, but it was like, this is like a total waste of time. What would people, anybody do with all this kind of stuff? I just lost there. And basically, what I studied was... Um, politics and i was fascinated with soviet government criminology studying the 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 kremlin what was going on behind in the kremlin this sort of mysterious uh body there uh how the uh, things were operating it was a very sort of secret society like like ufos and stuff like that and the other thing i I had a background in is religion and what i was fascinated was with near-death studies and i had done a when i was at university this is before i ever saw ufo i had done uh, a paper which nobody's ever really done i had gone to the chaplains at various hospitals in i live in a fairly major city here and so i went from chaplain to chaplain at different hospitals and basically i asked all sorts of weird questions like um you know did anybody have near-death experiences which of course was starting to come out in the 1970s did anybody ever predict their own death did you ever have somebody said you know wow you know uh, i know when i'm gonna die and uh, did you ever have anybody was there ever a miracle did anybody ever get up and walk away when they were like at death's door and and not come back and so i'd ask all these weird questions and i produced this paper so anyway oh, here, I, I have, let me just interrupt were you getting interesting answers to those questions oh i, I was i was actually fascinated because uh you would ask questions for example i would ask the question of did anybody ever predicted they were going to die because I, I had the background of edgar casey who had predicted his own death that was part of i, I knew this sort of background so it was one of the questions i asked and uh, the one guy i had uh, Almost every one of them said, "Yeah, they would. They were very open." I didn't go to the doctors because I believe the doctors really wouldn't open up on this. The same with nurses that they had this sort of vested interest that they were carriers. But the chaplains, I believed, um, were the people who 
dealt with death. And it, there, when you get to death, there, there's, there's no uh, making up stories. There's no goofing around. It's basically this is hardcore reality. This is we, We've got to straighten everything out before we die. And so chaplains are dealing with this on a daily basis. And that's what I found is that they basically were very open. And they, you know, I'd go to the Roman Catholic nun who I couldn't believe it, some of the stuff she was telling me. And it was completely, they sort of like leave your religious dogma at the door and actually tell what happens at death, the experiences. And for example, when I asked the question about uh, did anybody ever predict their death? And uh, most of them said, yeah, they had this experience. And the one guy told me the experience that the nurses had been told um, to um, notify the chaplain if anything like this happened, not to question the patient or to, uh, you know, to slough it off or whatever. And um, what had happened was this guy was, uh, you know, how cancer patients at the very end, they'll have a really good day just before they they go downhill very fast. And this guy was having an extremely good day. His wife was there at nine o'clock in the morning, was talking to him and and stuff, and he was doing really well. And the the chaplain told me that the second this wife left the room she had just left the hospital and this is in the, before the days of cell phones where you could really get a hold of anybody as soon as she left the guy said get get my wife back i'm gonna die and they said well okay hang on and so they phoned the chaplain and the chaplain went in and he told me this story he went into this guy and he said well how do you know and he said no you got to get my wife back he said yeah okay well we're gonna get your wife we're trying to contact her and she had gone shopping and um he said, well, how do you know? How do you know you're going to die? And the guy said, I don't know. I just know I'm going to die. He said, well, do you feel anything? And he said, well, I got a sort of a, a funny feeling in my legs and in my stomach. And I just know you got to get her back. I'm going to die. And the guy said, well, you're doing very well. And so they finally got the, the wife back and they didn't find her till three o'clock in the afternoon. She came back at 430 in the afternoon. And the guy was dead. So it was those kind of experiences and those kind of stories that I sort of wrote up and then I sort of dropped it. Like it's, it's actually something I'd like to go back and do those weird sort of questions like did anybody ever come to visit somebody just before death uh you know really sort of uh, bizarre sort of questions that surround death so i had this background and then what happened was um when i was going to university uh, this these ufo sightings were happening at a town about 30 miles outside of the major city that i live in and i live about 60 miles from the u.s border in canada right above north dakota the in sort of the coldest part of the country and anyway the i had no interest in ufos i'd never thought about ufos or anything that i can recall and it was just that these things were being seen and so i went out there and um just to see what everybody else was seeing and the first night i was there for an hour and if i hadn't seen anything we were about to go home we were going into the town for the last time and basically we saw this thing and it flew right in front of the car and it was like sort of blew me away. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I went out two nights later. Can you describe what you're seeing? I'm a very visual well, person, so I need to okay. hear this. Yeah. Well, but we, we didn't know what we were looking at. Like, we saw Venus setting, and I thought, I, I'm not even sure to this day but it was Venus, but we could see these sort of things, and we're looking around and saying, well, is that what people are looking at? Because everybody was seeing this. There's people from the city were driving out just trying to see this thing. It was coming almost every night. And so we didn't know really what, what to to, um, to 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 describe and we saw this venus setting i said well that's what everybody's looking at that's nothing i mean this is this is nuts and we were about to go home and i can still remember this thing and i talk about it in ufology about this thing about belief and uh knowing that if you haven't seen a ufo you can either believe it 
or disbelieve it, but you can't know. You can only know if you saw it. And that was the, the experience I had. We're driving into the town. It came from the left-hand side of the car to the right-hand side of the car. It was moving very, very slow, but it was bobbing up and down. It was not moving in a straight line. It was just sort of like a fishing bobber on a line when, when you've got a fishing line. And it was sort of just moving up and down. It was red. It was slowly pulsing. It was completely red. It was an, an object. It wasn't a, a, you know, a light in the sky. It was an actual object. But you really couldn't tell the shape. It was longer than it was high. But it was, and it was pulsing. It was like a, a heart that was alive. And it was coming across. And I remember, because here we are, we're looking around. We're saying, well, was this it? Is this it? We, 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 we said, okay, we'll go back in the town one more time. If nothing happens, we're going home. And not, I never would have got into this. So when we came back, and as soon as this thing appeared from the left to the right, there was, there was three people. There was a guy in the back seat, myself and my friend, driving. We're driving in, and everybody said instantly, there it is. It was like, that's what everybody's talking about. It was so dramatic. It wasn't like we had to analyze to say, well, you know, is that a star? Is that? It was just so dramatic. And I can still remember we were we were going along, and it came right in front of the car, maybe half a mile down the road. It was not very high off the ground. I don't know, 100 feet, 150 feet off, and it was moving in front of the 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 car, moving to the right hand side, going into the north. And I can still remember that I was so hyped by this thing that it was going, there was a bunch of school buses that they parked outside this small town. And the object was going towards the school buses. And I could tell that this thing was going to disappear in behind the school buses because it was so low. And I can still remember the car was moving and I'm getting out of the car to run across this parking lot to get to these, to these buses so that I can watch this thing as it flies away. And I was just sort of blown away. And the, the, the impressed me, the thing was the thing about, when you see it, you know it's like you don't. Nobody can. People can talk to me as much as they want about what they thought it was. I, I could care less what anybody thinks. I know what I saw was dramatic. It was not something. My father's a pilot. My son's a pilot. I'm not stupid. This was very dramatic. And then two nights later, the thing came right at us. The second night. Ooh, and, so, you, so a second time you saw it. Okay. Yeah, and and then I would actually got to the point because this was happening. Uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, and there was a, as, as I sort of describe later on when I go back and analyze it, I couldn't figure it out for 30 years, but I go back and analyze it, the only a- active anti-ballistic missile unit in the United States that ever went operational, went operational from February of 1975 to November of 1975, and it was directly south across the U.S. border in, in North Dakota, and it, it protected the, the Minuteman three missiles. And this was the whole thing about the Russians were going to go and they had, you know, uh, one megaton units and five megaton and they were going to try to shoot it down. It was the first Star Wars thing. It was only operational for these period of, the period of time when these, this, this sighting was going on. So anyway, I have the sighting. And what sort of amazed me was the, the fact that I knew then what was going on. This thing comes, I know what it is. And the other thing was that... Um, I was affected differently than anybody else. And I think it's the same with you, with most people that I've met in ufology, that you have an experience and basically you're the lone ranger. Your friends, your family, nobody else really fits into it. They, they, you're sort of like all by yourself. And what happened to me is the first night, my friend, uh, who was with me on maybe half a dozen uh, occasions, I still have breakfast with him every once a week. I've known him for 55 years, and he went on with his life. Nothing changed. 
I fell off the end of the earth. I quit university. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was going out there. I was interviewing people in the town and stuff like that. And he just went on with his life. The guy in the back seat, I don't know if he ever did anything. And it was it was so popular, this, this UFO that was flying around, that I actually was taking tours. I would take people out there. They wanted to see it. They'd say, oh, we can film it. They'd bring out cameras. They'd bring out all this sort of stuff. So I was taking people out and everybody else went on with their life. And I changed. And that I look back in 30 years later and say, maybe it wasn't coincidence that I saw this thing. Maybe this was part of, of my experience that I was meant to see this because it affected me completely different. My son, who's, who's got his pilot's license, no interest whatsoever. My first wife said this was of the devil. Uh, my present girlfriend really is not interested. My parents, my parents sort of were interested. My sister sort of. Nobody really is reads my website i'm basically by myself and that's where i get this sort of idea that maybe you i all these different people we're here and we have some sort of mission to to achieve to accomplish and that's why it affected me so much differently than everyone else now i can get more into that later because i think that's an important part of my philosophy of how this works and, and I have had three major experiences in my life which were dramatic the number one as I said was when I first saw my first UFO I just basically fell off the end of the earth I just got wrapped up in the UFO cult I just went nuts I just like ran and then I pulled out after I published I, I we were talking before I published a book called UFOs MJ-12 in the government dealt with a former president of Penn State University we thought we'd broken the cover-up. We thought this was it. This was the, the former chairman of the Institute for Defense Analysis, which was the top military think tank. And I thought, man, this is it. We've broken the cover-up. The, the newspaper from Penn State University went to interview this guy. For the first time in eight years, he hung up the phone. He said, I, I, I deny it. Uh, I'm busy. Goodbye. And they were so intimidated by this guy, they didn't do anything. So I pulled out of ufology for about maybe 10 years. And this the would next, have been what chapter? What like what would these ten this, years have been? Nineteen ninety to nineteen to two thousand. Okay, okay, so about okay, that, okay. okay and, so and then the um, the fellow you're talking about uh, that would have been Dr. Eric Walker. Dr. Eric Walker, who was former president of Penn State University, and what we did was he sort of indicated to in one major first interview that he basically knew the whole story. He was there in 1947. He knew all the the top players. Uh, he was. Uh, executive director of the research and development board which developed all the weapons uh he basically confirmed a lot of stuff he didn't want to really talk he'd always talk around it i don't i can't talk about the subject i don't want to talk about the subject uh, it, you know go away do something else uh you're up against the windmills you're never going to un- understand this thing and he would even the, the consciousness lecture i give now i even talk about this thing which ties into my Colin Andrew lecture, where the, all this stuff popped into my head. But I'll get into that later. He makes this comment about ESP. We were talking to him, and we're basically like, how does a cover-up work? Uh, how many people are in MJ-12 as an international group? You know, all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, he cuts off the interview, and he says, what do you know about ESP? And the guy that's interviewing him from Britain says, well, you know, he gives him some lame answer. You know, well, I know a little bit or whatever. He said, unless you understand ESP and how it works, you will not get taken in. And he's talking about the about the group that controls it, unless you understand that. And, you know, I, th- that happened in 1988 or whatever. Ni- no, 1993 that interview took place. We basically really it, – it sort of escaped us at the moment. And it wasn't until this third incident – 
with Colin Andrews where suddenly this thing pops back into my head what Eric Walker had said and what a bunch of other people. But let me get to the second event. I pull out, we do this Walker thing, and it basically falls apart. And I think, that's it. This is, this is a waste of time. Uh, we're never going to convince anybody. If this evidence doesn't convince the people that there's a cover-up and that this thing's for real, it, it, it's not going anywhere. So I basically pulled out, and the next event I had was I saw an ad in a newspaper. And this is this uh, uh, sort of this... Uh, uh, synchronicity type thing. I see this ad in a UFO magazine. I'm really not into it anymore. I've got all my files and stuff. And there's a conference at Laughlin, Nevada. Now, if you remember, I live in a place where in Canada, there aren't many researchers. There's really nothing around me. To the, the closest major city to me is like 360 miles. I'm just in, in the middle of nowhere. So for me, when I saw this Laughlin conference, which I think used to be nine days or whatever, eight days or whatever, I thought, wow, that's cool. You know, this is, I, I live in, you know, it's, you can get the 40, 50 below here. And here's, uh, you know, Laughlin, Nevada. It's, you know, 70, 70 Fahrenheit there during the day. I thought this would be fantastic. Eight days, I go down there. I can listen to UFO stuff for eight days. And so I went the, just because it was eight days. And what year was would it have been? This is about year 2000, 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. And anyway, that was the second big event. I'm there, and it's like if you've been to Laughlin. You, you know how the thing works. You're there, and it's just one lecture after another, day after day after day. And you sort of just sort of sort of get into it, and you get into the groove, and you're, you're listening to all this sort of stuff, and your mind sort of opens up. It's not like a, an ordinary conference where they're there two days, and then you, you go home, and you, you really don't get into it. And what happened was I, I used to go – across and i go to the library on the other side there's uh bullhead city which is no, no casinos or anything and i go over to loft uh, to bullhead city and i'd sit in the library and do stuff there and whatever and the the one lecture it was dr michael newton who was lecturing and i thought oh well you know i thought i'd go over to the library and i thought well no maybe i'll sit here and i'll i'll watch this lecture so i sit for this michael newton lecture and i was i just i could tell you when I saw this guy lecture, and he talked about UFOs, he talked about a sighting he'd had, and there was two United Airlines pilots on the road beside him, and they were all watching this thing fly around. But his basic thing took me back to my original, the way I started, this fascination with death. And Newton, to, to sort of explain to your people, because it's hard unless you've actually read his material, he has basically, he was a, a clinical psychologist who did regressions for ordinary type stuff. And he was basically an atheist. And he basically had nothing to do with, you know, bump in the night type stuff. And he runs into a guy, there's a, a guy that comes to him and wants to be regressed. And he's got this pain. And my, Newton says to him, go to the source of the pain. And suddenly this guy starts describing himself in a World War One battlefield. And he's and Newton is fascinated with history. So he, he's fascinated. He starts asking this guy, the guy's in pain. He says, like, what's the patch on your arm? You know, where are you? What, what? And he basically is drilling this guy on, on what's going on. And so he suddenly gets into this thing about reincarnation and the fact that, that maybe he's been wrong his whole life. And he gets into this thing that, that he works on 7,000 people, 7,000 clients that he's worked on. This is from the 1970s up till now. He doesn't really do that much anymore. He just sort of teaches people uh, how to do this. And anyway, he goes through these three, four-hour regressions. And basically what this whole thing is about with these 7,000 people is he basically regresses the person to the past life, and then he lets them die. And then he takes them from the last life, 
coming up to this life and he says okay you're dying what's happening you're going through the light okay where do you go next where do you go next and he keeps getting them deeper and deeper and deeper into the hypnosis where he'll say it takes three to four hours to get them to this point and then he goes into the life what's called life between lives and he goes through this whole thing about what happens between lives and and so when i saw this i was just like it sort of fit everything that i had sort of worked on before I got into UFOs and I, I couldn't think for two days my head was just spinning I couldn't believe I'd seen this lecture it just it was the second most dramatic thing that ever happened I got his book I read his book and to me as I described to you before the interview said this is my bible this is what I think reality is all about because to me evidence is very important it's it's one thing to have like in ufology you get into for example i go through the present so i'm dealing with uh, uh thor who's a, an alien who talks to eisenhower or i'm talking to adamski who's channeling and and you know meeting aliens and it, with kennedy and all this stuff is very sort of um you know a lot of noise to the signal which is why people don't like consciousness in ufology ufology is sort of a rodney dangerfield type thing everybody's laughing at us nobody wants to get into anything so everybody says well ufos we really don't know what it is nobody wants to say the word et and everybody's playing this little game like we, we want to be cool we want to be scientific and all this sort of stuff and so when you get into the channeling type stuff and people just they go nuts i mean we're, we're not going here we're this is this is insane people are laughing at us already if we start getting into talking to aliens and channeling when you have a lot of problems with people who channel that there's there's noise that they're not always accurately right but the newton stuff i found was 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 evidence that really supported supported itself i think with seven thousand people and he's basically going through the same thing all the time and he says basically everybody says the same thing so that was the second most motivating thing so i had this background of this sort of my idea of how uh, the the world worked, what reality was all about. And I, I sort of have followed that since then. Hey, over the here, third... I'm just going to interrupt one thing. I'm just okay. going to share a little bit of my own experience. Um, uh, it would have been probably right at the publication of the first in a series of three books. I don't really know how I found it, but I found it right away shortly after the first publication. It was a book called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And, okay. um, and that book, uh, in essence, played the same role that um, Michael Newton's uh, lecture, and and I obviously you have read his book. I read part of it online, um, uh, and and uh, I was very much opened up to a you know a spiritual view of reality that I did not have before. I just thought um, that that the uh, what was presented in that book was was nice. I just felt it was a nice way to look at the universe, and. Um, and I, I really resonated strongly with it. Um, so, so anyway, I just wanted to say that. And, yeah. and also, it's a channeled book. So, you're, you know, the the hypnosis process in that uh, uh, Michael Newton's, you know, the way he does his research, you know, almost comes across as, in essence, channeled material. He's like tapping into to some unknown the, force. The superconscious, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's where he says the superconscious, that he'll talk to people who say, I can't, I can't, I've regressed people, it doesn't work, I can't get them there. And he says, well, how long did you do it for? And they said, oh, an hour. And he said, no, you got to go three hours. you got to get to the superconscious. you got to get through the, the unconscious and you've got to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper because this is at a very sort of level. And that's the problem, I think, with, with the channel material is you're sort of bumping into that, that superconscious thing. You're, you're going in and out of it 
and you're you're catching a piece you're catching a piece here catching a piece but there's this noise once when you pop out of it then you you get some stuff that isn't really all that accurate and i i i've even detailed a story if you go to my website i i deal deal with the story where the cia is channeling a woman and the cia was into her and the navy intelligence was into her fbi had a file on her the canadian government was really heavily into this woman and this was a woman that lived near betty hill just down the street from Betty Hill, and she was channeling the blondes. And this was in 1959. And the CIA, there's a story, it's on my website, where the CIA, actually, she teaches a Navy intelligence guy who's the uh, assistant head of the National Photographic Interpretation Center where this channeling took place. And the National Photographic Interpretation Center is where they analyzed all the U-2, all the SR-71, all the spy photographs. This is one of the top CIA buildings in the world. And so the, the head guy, whose name was Arthur Lundahl, was really into uh you know psychic phenomena and you know the whole bit just like you and i we're sort of like into the spiritual thing and ufos and and so his assistant gets taught how to do this they bring him into this this lab and they basically um tell this alien that we want you to show yourself and they say go to the window and the thing flies by the window and there's all these cia guys and they watch the thing fly by the window and they record all this sort of stuff and there's a lot of documentation from various agencies that um, that this actually did happen. But when you look at her stuff and her actually channel stuff, some of the stuff is just like totally bizarre. I mean, these people are from the planet Uranus and, and just it, it brings in the Bible. And you can tell that, that this woman is sort of bumping into this, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise. She's hitting certain parts where she's in at it and out of it, and, and she's just picking up parts of it, and there's a lot of garbage mixed into it. So that's why, to me, the Newton thing I was so important because it was 7,000 people, and you're cross-indexing all this material. It's just not one person doing this kind of material. It's, it's a number of people. So anyway, that was the second big thing, and that happened at Laughlin, Nevada. The third one happened in Laughlin, Nevada as well. And I would go to Laughlin most years because it was a long conference, and I kind of enjoyed it. You know, at Laughlin, you walk down the, the river there, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's nice and warm, whereas back home, it's 40 below. And so I would go most years. And then this year when I went, it was, it was in Phoenix, and I'm there, and same thing. I'm just sort of going to the lectures, and uh, there was this – this sort of thing of consciousness. For example, Stephen Greer was there. He's talking about, you know, uh, his aspect of consciousness. And you had Lynn Katai, and she's talking about seeing these objects in the backyard, and and she's able to, you know, actually make them appear. And her husband, they're laughing at her. Her husband and her son are laughing, where she can sort of make this thing appear, and the, and the thing flies by. And there was this this sort of underlying. Well, here, here, just let me let me just here, yeah. just as on the t- topic of con- of channeling, Lynn Katai. Uh, channeled some information which she writes about i think in her in the updated version of her book i don't yeah. think it was included in the first edition but she talks about it in the updated version which has been republished um and i in a, and it might not have been much but i think it was like a single page of automatic writing so there's one more person involved in the overall phenomena that's channeling so yeah and so all these lectures were the same thing they had this this sort of this sort of undertone of of consciousness and it wasn't until um Colin Andrews lecture I knew about crop circles. I'd sort of looked at crop circles. It was all very interesting. Really hadn't done re- any major research on it. I was kind of interested in they, they just showed these sort of balls of light moving through. And we had had balls of light back in 76. We'd flash light at them. So I sort of was interested in that aspect of, of these little orb things that were running around that we call ground lights. And when he did this lecture, it was like the Newton lecture. It was like my first sighting. It was like 
I was watching this, and his his basic premise was the fact that he had the big catalog of, of crop circle sightings. He had been given money by Rockefeller to find out how many of them are hoaxed, how many of them are real. He'd come out with this paper based upon uh, – you know, following people around with private investigators, that 80% of the crop circles were hoaxed, only 20% of them were real. And he basically was ostracized by the UFO community. Everybody said he's working for the government. He was like, and he was just, his career was over. And now he's come back, and the lecture he gave there at Phoenix was called uh, Crop Circle Consciousness. Yes, and I and, saw it. it was, I was very yeah. impressed. I'm, I, yeah. I, I find him a, a remarkably it, it a, yeah. charming guy. It was a bizarre sort of lecture, and his theory was that the the eighty percent are hoax, but the eighty percent crop circles that are hoax are also controlled by the aliens. That the aliens are telling the crop circle hoaxers what kind of pattern to put down, which sounds like very bizarre. But then when you you've heard his lecture, he starts producing this evidence, and it's like, whoa, maybe there's something to this. He, he actually has some evidence to back up the fact that this may be true, and it comes down to the premise that the aliens are basically in charge. And that was a theory that I had had before and that I sort of thought, you know, um, that he really validated. And suddenly I had this sort of image of all these things popping into my head that for I've been in 37 years and things that people had said, high ranking people had said were suddenly it all sort of made sense. And it was this consciousness thing was this idea uh, like Walker saying, Unless you understand about ESP, you're, you're, you're not going anywhere. Ben Rich, Ben Rich, who ran Skunk Works, had given this famous lecture in 1993 at UCLA to the engineers. And he had put this little image on the screen with the, the flying saucer and said, we now have the technology to take ET home. And two of the MUFON members who were engineers who were at the lecture were just blown away by this. And they chased him out of the building. And Jan Hartson out of California is the guy who asked him the question. He said, Ben... How how do they propel? I mean, what's the propulsion system? And Ben Rich turns around and says to him, let me ask you a question. How does ESP work? And Jan Hartson says, well, ESP, that's just everything in the universe is connected. And Ben Rich says, now you know how it works. And he walks away and gets into his car and drives away. So it was like just this sort of this just, you know, the, the sort of a moment of inspiration when Colin Andrews gave this lecture where it was like everything came together. It was like. Now it makes sense. The consciousness is the key part. And I had, when I first started, what happened was I did the sightings and I ran around. And I interviewed all these people in Carmen, Manitoba, which is this town where everything took place. And I published a manuscript, which I've still got. And I, I published the manuscript and I tried to get it read by major publishers in Canada. And some people read it and really not, nobody took a, a bite. But the local publisher – this story was big in, in this city, and I live in a city of about 700,000 people. And I can still remember the rejection letter from the local publisher. She said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And basically, that was it. I've heard a lot of sightings. This is a waste of time. These sightings, and I've always known sightings are a waste of time. So what I did is I said, well, I know what I saw. Somebody somebody who knows more than me has to know what this is about and i started this search where i started to try to find out who knew what was going on and the first place i went to was the canadian government because my father was work, had worked for the department of transport he was a pilot worked for the government and one of the people in his department was a radar tech who had told me he said well you know if you really want to know what's going on with ufos you should work work on the work of Wilbur Smith. And I said, well, who is he? And he said, well, he's the guy that ran the Canadian government UFO program for four years from 1950 to 1954. 
And I said, well, I've never heard of this guy. And he said, oh, yeah, I worked with him. He had a flying saucer observatory, and, uh, you know, the thing flew over, and the bells went off, and we all went running out. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he's, he was kind of a crazy guy. You know, he was actually talking to the aliens, and the alien's name was Affa. And we used to make jokes and say, oh, yeah, Wilbur, you know, half a pint, have another pint, you know, half a pint. Uh, and he would talk about this alien as if this guy actually existed. And I said, this the guy that ran the Canadian government UFO program? He said, yeah. I mean, he, he used to tell us they were landing in his backyard, and he was talking to him. And I go, wow. So I basically go and interview his wife because he had died in 62. I didn't get involved till 75. And so this is about 77. I went to interview his wife in Ottawa. And she basically told me the whole thing. Yeah, it's for real. And she's talking about AFA like he was the, 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 the pet dog. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and he, here's this guy. And this guy ran the Canadian government UFO program. And he was basically in contact with this alien. And he was involved with this woman in, in Maine who was involved with the CIA. And... He had the Canadian government, the Canadian government has actually admitted that they opened a base in Alberta for UFOs to land, and that was Wilbur Smith doing it, and that he was in contact, and he was going to get AFA to land on this base, and the Canadians have actually admitted that they opened the base for UFOs to land, and it was Paul Hellyard made the announcement, who was the former defense minister, and me and another researcher were going to Hellyard and saying, because we knew about the Smith thing, and we were saying, well, how did UFOs know where to land? I mean, you opened the base, you had to have some sort of communication in order for the for the aliens to get to, to land. So that's what started this whole consciousness thing that it was there, but I never really thought about it, how it fit in. And basically, I came up with a theory after I saw Colin Andrews. And that was basically, as I said before, I'd always believed, and I re- reestablished this, UFOs, when you're looking at sightings, it's basically a waste of time. It's basically a lot of people now are saying, oh, we want the government to do another study. We want the, uh, uh, the media to wake up and do the story and give it to us. Or we want science to do another study. We, we need another study. And basically, another study is a total waste of time. I, oh, yeah, I'm going to interrupt. I agree completely. Yeah, I just think that, that the uh, uh, whatever's happening, um, like to look to the government or to look up, to some research, you know, to some resource, looking up to some resource isn't going to do the work. I think that what what you are doing is is creating uh, like a grassroots level of awareness that um, that 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 is what needs to change. The, the yeah. ground up needs to change, not the top down. Yeah, and and because what you're going to get is if you get another somebody else doing another study, you're going to go through another twelve thousand sightings. You're going to look at another things, and John John Lear who's the sort of the famous guy out of Las Vegas who started all the underground base stuff. He used to describe it as how big is it compared to your thumb and which direction is it moving in? And this is what our ufology has come down to. It's like how many red ones were there? How many blue ones were there? What directions were they moving? Were they moving fast? How big were they? All this sort of stuff. And this answers nothing. All it's going to do is get you another study with 12,000 things, and there's going to be 700 unknowns. And then when you go to the government or the media or the science, and you're going to say, well, what are the unknowns? They don't want to be Roddy Dangerfield. They don't want their friends laughing at them. So they're going to say, well, they're unknowns. We don't know what they are. And it's like a total waste of time. And you'll see this in, in people's writing now that it's unknown. We don't know what it is, but we want the government to do another study. Well, the government's not going to come to the conclusion. They don't want to say ET anymore than you and I want to say ET. And so I, I, what I came to after the Colin Andrews was this thing that absolutely is true, that unless ufology gets inside the craft or talks to the aliens – we aren't going anywhere. That's the next step. You have to start talking to the aliens. And later, after I got this, 
I started to get these sort of things that uh, I thought nobody was working on. And then I found out people were. For example, Jim, Jim Delatosa, who did the analysis on the Phoenix Lights. He's got uh, this big uh, you know, amount of equipment in Phoenix where he's able to analyze. And he's done probably more analysis of UFO photographs than anybody else in the world. He has basically come to the same conclusion. He basically just deals with contactees now. That's his main focus. And the way he describes it is is exactly the way it is. It's like being up on top of a skyscraper and looking down at the ground and seeing these little things moving around and saying, well, there's a red one, there's a big one, maybe that's a mothership, seeing little people sort of getting out, well, maybe there's, there's humanoids in them. And we really don't know what it is until you actually take the elevator down and like Travis Walton did, run out in front of one of them and wave and, and wave your arms and get one of them to take you on board and do communication until you do that, until you communicate with whoever is in those crafts or, or get inside the craft, you're not going to learn anything. It's like a marriage. I, I gave a, a lecture in England. I gave it last month in, in Philadelphia. And I said, ufology is like a marriage. And any woman, if you go to marriage counseling, will say the number one problem in a marriage is communication. It's the same thing. Until you start communicating with whoever is flying these things around, nothing's going to happen. That is the next step. That's what we have to do. And it doesn't matter how much noise there is because a lot of people will say, oh, Billy Meyer, George Adamski, these people are all nuts. You know, Shirley MacLaine and, and threw up all sorts of names that there's, these people are all nuts. And it is true that there was a lot of noise in the signal, that a lot of the stuff you get from contactees or abductees, it's, it's, it's screen imaging type stuff, it's all this kind of stuff, that it's, it, it's so hard to distinguish that nobody really wants to deal with it because they say there's too much noise. But it's the same thing with ufology, with sightings, that you have to separate the signal from the noise. That's our job. That that's basically what we're we're we're, we're supposed to do. And just because it's hard doesn't mean we we're not going to take that trip. We have to do it. And and it, it it's what I work on now is to set up this this sort of uh, image that we have to, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much people laugh at us, we have to find a way to make that sort of communication. And that's where. I would spend more time talking to, listening to uh, contactees, abductees, uh, people who claim the government has talked to them. And when you when you start looking at it, you find out that people have actually done this. And I found this after I sort of had this revelation that I found out, and a lot most people don't know this. Like the, we had the Blue Book study, and people say, well, we want a new study. And people don't realize that we actually had a study that went from 1968 to 1970, and it was run by aircraft and here's a bunch of guys who are just basically trying to get you know the advantage on all the other air, aircraft companies trying to develop something new and all the engineers headed by dr bob wood oh yeah i was gonna say that yeah bob wood i've heard him talk about this he'll keep going yeah and so he 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 basically decided that they wanted to look into this and douglas aircraft gave them half a million dollars and said go to it Engineers And Bob Wood's explanation was the way ufology should think about it, that if there is, a, a, whether it's a, a psychic phenomena or uh, a contact or um, alien stuff, any, whatever it is, if the aliens figured it out, Bob Wood said, we can figure it out too. 
We're smart. We're engineers. All we have to do is work at it and analyze it, and we can figure this thing out. And he was fascinated by a story out of out of uh, Mexico where a guy is, is walking along, and he runs into an alien coming around. A, a, he's on a, sort of a road and going around a sort of a... a a corner, and there's this alien standing there, and the alien has this belt on with a with a sort of a, a knob on it, and the guy turns the knob, and he's able to communicate with the alien. And so Bob said, "Well, th- th- this is basically what what we should be doing. We'll follow that, assume the story's true, and we'll work on this sort of thing. Is there some sort of technology that we can actually talk to the aliens?" And what I found out now is that there are actually people who are doing it. For example, Bob Wood, the way I, I recovered all these documents, and I put them on a website called um, Check the Evidence. That's the only place you'll find these documents. I was offered these documents by the guy who found them, and I'll, I'll get out of the story of how, how it happened. But anyway, we put these documents, 275 pages, on this site called um, uh, Check the Evidence. And it's, they're called the Douglas Documents. And basically, they go through this whole scenario of how they did all this work on anti-gravity, but they also did work on contactees. They would have, they would contact contactees because they figured, let's talk to the contactee. Maybe the aliens told the contactee how the ship was propelled. And they went through this and they had this this hypnotist guy who would hypnotize these contactees trying to get the technological material out of them. Now, I've learned now, one of the major scientists in ufology, I can't really say because the story's not 100% true, uh, 100% verified, top scientist in ufology and very rich guy out of Las Vegas are using the same technique. They're talking to contactees. So this is the whole thing. And people will say, well, that's kind of crazy. But if you look at it, it makes total sense. If you take a look, you had the, you did the interview with uh, uh, Melinda Leslie. And she said something that just amazed me when she was doing the interview with you. The black ops people, the covert ops people get it. Ufology doesn't, but they get it. So they're basically re-abducting abductees to find out why are the aliens here? What are they doing? How does the ship work? And that's basically what it comes down to. Until you talk to the aliens or whoever this intelligence is that are flying these things around, you will never know where they're from. You will never know what they're doing here. You have to communicate. So you can see these sort of things that people are – the government has figured it out, and they take just take it. I think you have in ufology or whatever field you're working in, you have to take it exactly like the government does. The government looks at it and says, well, it looks like you know there's these stories about people being abducted. And they may say, well, you know, it's probably nonsense or whatever, but you can't take the chance. So if you're, if you're a logical guy in the intelligence community, you're going to say, maybe this is true. We should take a look at it in case the Russians are working on it, in case the Chinese are working on it, the Chinese and the Russians were working on it. So you, you, you get into the remote viewing, you get into psychokinesis, you start looking at what are the Russians doing because the whole thing in the military, is, it's all got to do with lead time. That if you, for example, you take a look at the atomic bomb, the Americans detonate the atomic bomb in 1945 and they've got this technology that the Russians didn't get till four years later. So if you've got a, a weapon, if you can develop a weapon or some sort of technology from whether it's contactees or uh, UFOs or whatever, you've got this. If it comes down to having to use this in a war, you basically are looking at um, it, the war starts. You use your secret weapon, whatever it is. And then the other side has a has a meeting with their their head guy, and he says, "Okay, 
we, we've got to develop this. They've got this secret weapon. We've got to develop this. And it all comes down to lead time. So he'll say, well, you know, they've got this, this weapon that they've developed from UFO technology. And it, well, how long is it going to take us to develop it? And the guy, the guy, the scientist will say, well, 15 years. The way war works today, you've got days. You don't have 15 years. So that's the whole thing is that lead time is the, the important thing that the other side will take so long to develop the new technology if you can get it. So it makes total sense when, Le- when Melinda Leslie says that black ops is looking at this and simple technology. They, they don't really you know, care where they're from or what they're doing or whatever. They just want the technology. If you can, if you, you assume uh, abductions are right, I'm in Canada. If I've got it, I can fly down to Washington, grab a Barack Obama, you know, get into his head, give him messages, block everything, put him back in, in the White House and be back in, in Canada for lunch. That kind of technology is it's just something that, that you the, – the black ops people, as Leslie said, they get it. They know that you, you've got to work on this. In the UFO community, we're, in, we're still into the sort of thing, what are people going to think about us? You know, what, 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 uh, you know, what, what are the, the, the drawbacks to dealing with people who might not have information that's 100% accurate? I think you've got to look at it like intelligence, that maybe these, these people are going to give you 90% garbage. But the 10%, if you can cross-index it like, like Newton does with 7,000 people, if you can get 7,000 and cross-index and find out the 10% that everybody's talking the same thing, then you've got something that you can go with. Yeah, here, so I'm just going to interrupt that, that, that that goes with the channeling information also, where oh, yeah. I think a lot of it is getting mixed up and sort of gobbledygook and maybe purposely misleading on the part of you know the the source of wherever this is coming from but i will say i have had some profound experiences while interacting with channels uh very interesting um stuff has come up that i have gone through and and actually it might have even taken years later and then i realized that like the puzzle piece that i needed was given to me in a channeled session you know you know a year before yeah, and and so what you'd have to do is if you realize this is significant, I realize that this is significant, is somehow we need some sort of program to put all these people together, to gather who all these people are who are doing this, and start analyzing it and find out how to get more signal and less noise. But we really aren't doing that. We're sort of like just sort of throwing it out and saying, you know, uh, no, I really don't want to touch that. You know, let's just uh, have another UFO thing and let's, you know, take some more photographs. And, and know, analyze some kind of pictures thing. of little dots yeah. in the sky. Yeah. And, 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 and really not, nothing happens. So that, that's the next thing that we have to use. And as Melinda Leslie points out, the government is already on this. They're way ahead of us. So I disagree with people who say, well, you know, the government really doesn't know what's going on. And I'm, I'm figuring, well, I'm some Yahoo here from Canada with nothing, you know, maybe a 72 IQ or whatever. I mean, here I am and I've figured out what I have. And the government with all the resources and the money haven't figured out anything? I don't think so. I basically think that, that they've uh, done a lot of this. And it's just basically classified, which is it's sad. And, and it, they have to do it that way. But a lot of this, the stuff they have, uh, Bob Emenegger, there's an interview he just did now. Uh, and Bob Emenegger was the guy who did a documentary that I think was approved by Richard Nixon back in the 70s. And he, he does a um, 
he's done a number of interviews because I basically set him up because I think it's one of the most important stories in ufology. And basically, he's set up by the U.S. government to do a documentary on UFOs, and he's given a bunch of material that never was known before. For example, this woman that was channeling for the CIA, that story was given to him. Never known before it was given to him. Bob Friend from, from Blue Book actually goes, and they film in the room. He talks to Arthur Lundolf and the CIA, and everybody confirms all this sort of stuff. So Bob is talking, and, he, and the latest thing, he was going to actually do a documentary now, and he'd gone to the military about six months ago to do another documentary. Where six they were months ago recently? It. Just just yeah. now? Yeah, he made an approach, and basically it, it dealt with this consciousness thing. Uh, not so much the consciousness, well, that was part of it, but it was it was he, the approach they made to the government was okay. Um, if you if you're at NORAD and you see something coming down, they wanted the government to give them what are the protocols? What do you do if a, if a ship lands and all this sort of stuff? And they're going to get into this whole thing about how you talk to them. And one of the things he stated, which and I've I've known Bob for years, and I've heard his story. I probably know the story as good as he does. One of the things he mentioned in his last year I'd never heard before was that that uh, Coleman, who was the uh, sort of the uh, public relations guy for Blue Book in the 1960s and then ran the UFO show, uh, had a two-year run of a UFO show on TV, a very sort of top guy in Project Blue Book, had actually told Emenegger, he said, oh, yeah, we, we had a lot of efforts to try to use uh, – ESP to talk to uh, these these UFOs, and it wasn't 100% successful. We had some success. Now, here's a guy who, if you talk to him, you know, he'll say, oh, no, there's no UFOs, this is all garbage, you know, there's, there's no threat to national security, and he plays the old party line, and behind the scenes, he's saying to Bob, oh, yeah, we, we, we were using ESP. Now, that's the first time I ever heard an actual admission that the U.S. Air Force was actually trying to use ESP. They were working on it, there, and it wasn't successful. It's the whole thing. It wasn't 100% successful, but they did have some success. So as far as I'm concerned, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to try to figure out how do you get around it, like the, the engineers at Douglas Aircraft. You know, we, we've, we're missing something. Let's put some more evidence in here, and eventually you're going to get it. And Bob tells a story, a very interesting story. Back in the 1970s, this is 1972, when they first start this documentary, the originally the way this documentary started, it wasn't a UFO document. They wanted to do a documentary on the U.S. military, and they wanted to show some of the advances of the U.S. military to make the – because it was the Vietnam War, and it, the military was looking bad. So they wanted to put the U.S. military in a, in a better light. So they were going to show some of the developments in the U.S. military with uh, dogs and dolphins and, and all these things that they were sort of – up and they were given this money, and they, they went around. And one of the things he talks about, he goes to uh, DARPA, which uh, – was part of the Institute for Defense Analysis, which Walker was the chairman of the board. So DARPA was the sort of the uh, advanced weapons thing, where if you had like stealth stealth bomber was developed there, over-the-horizon radar, all these very high-tech things. It was to put it into an agency where, where you had the best minds working on it, all the money that you could. And he talks about going to DARPA in 1972, and he says he goes into a room, and this guy's, this guy's sitting there with a computer in the room. And the guy says, uh, well, no, I, I don't want to talk about this. And whoever his, his major, I think he had with him, and he said, no, no, you can talk to these guys. Just tell them what you're doing. And the guy says, well, I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to the computer. This is 1972. And he says, oh, what I do is I think of a word, and he'll think of a word like uh, window or something. And the computer will go, window. And they had it up to six words. This is 1972. No intera- no wires between the guy or the machine, nothing. Just this guy sitting in a room, and they were up to six words where he could, in his mind, and the computer could tell him what word he was thinking about. And I, when I do my consciousness lecture, I talk about a, a, a set of technology which shows you 
the fact that we can work on it and we can develop this this sort of consciousness and this sort of thing is there's a there's a unit on in the white world you can buy this thing on the internet and it's called uh, emotiv emotive and it's a unit Cost two hundred ninety nine bucks. Now this is the white world. You can imagine what the black world has. The, the the guys that have the money and the technology on the other side, what they've developed. And this unit, you can strap it to your head. It has little you know wires you can put on your on your head, and it's basically for kids. And you can you can put this thing on your head, and it, it attaches to your computer, and you can basically with your mind you can play games, and you can make things move around on the screen, and you can play these games. Now this is getting more advanced. There was three universities. One was Berkeley, one was a European university, and one, I think, was out of England. And uh, Slate magazine wrote this up. So these guys take a look at this thing and say, wow, you know, what can we do with this? And what kind of things can somebody who has bad intentions do? And what they found out was they would – and what it is is you just – they put somebody down, put this thing on their head, and then they would just flash images on the screen. No, no contact, no questions, nothing like this. And they would give the person a hypothetical four-digit PIN number for their credit card or their bank card. And then they would just flash numbers on the screen, all this sort of stuff. And they determined that 20% of the time, on the very first try, they could tell you what your PIN number was. They could uh, tell you 60% of the time on the first try when your birthday was. They could tell you, without you saying anything, where you bank it was unbelievable and this is this is white world technology that it's getting so advanced that you you can see the technology already coming out of it so you can imagine what the black world has so people who say that contact is all nonsense this this consciousness thing is all nonsense i'm saying absolutely not that if we were to get unified and work on it the problem with the unification and working on it is that the UFO community we've always had the one major problem is that it's always sort of been a hobby for people. It's really, there's no money in it. If it was sort of accepted, you could just sort of say, uh, Berkeley, I'm, I'm a professor at Berkeley. I'm going to set up a, an institute for consciousness and uh, uh, UFOs or something like that. You could hire a bunch of people, post doctorates. You know, everybody's making 100000 a year, put a bunch of people in there. You could actually work on the research and get it. The problem is that no university will touch this thing. And I worked at university for 35 years, so I know how it works. No university is going to touch this thing because it's that it's that Roddy Dangerfield thing. Nobody wants to really be associated with it, let alone be associated with talking to aliens. So it, that's why it doesn't go anywhere, that we don't have any money to actually fund the research to get the people who've got the, 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 the knowledge and the skills to do use scientific method to work through this. So now, no, here, here, let me interrupt what, yeah. what may be happening and what I feel like there's plenty of evidence. Uh, it might be fleeting evidence, uh, but that there are, you know, projects underway that have already gone down this road, already, um, you know, answered many of the questions that you're, you're, you're wrestling with and that these things are being somehow implemented. I have, I cannot tell you how many, Oh, this, you know, the MyLab stuff that uh, Melinda oh, yeah. Leslie talks about, as well but as... Um, oh, yeah. But it's the black world, though. It's not the white world. Yes, but I mean, so the work has already been done. So somehow or another, many of these questions that you're wrestling with have been answered. Oh, oh yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. That's what I said with Melinda yeah. Leslie. I mean, this this MillApp thing, it makes absolute total sense. There was a couple of things that don't make sense with the MillApp thing, but, but basically, it's the way you got to look at it. Like, if, if, if you're an intelligence agent, and... 
you get a contact or somebody channeling, it's not your job to sort of evaluate whether this person's crazy or not. Your job is to sit there and analyze this thing and see, is there anything here that we can use? And that, that's the basic way I think we have to take a look at it. Rather than judging things before we actually look at it, we assume that something's going on and we look at enough cases. And that's what I think the, the, the government or the, the whatever it is, the, the you know, the uh, military industrial complex or, you know, the contractors or whoever is in charge of this thing is doing that you, you basically um, take a look at it and not be skeptical. I don't believe in being skeptical. I don't believe in believe being gullible i think that's two ends of the spectrum i think you basically look at the evidence and you say does it walk like a duck does it quack like a duck does it waddle like a duck does it have sex with other ducks and make an evaluation from there rather than sort of starting at one end of the spectrum and saying i'm not going to believe anything i think the way the intelligence in the black world works is they basically say let's take a look at it let's see if there's anything we can use and that's where you get ben rich where you have this this sort of thing where where ben rich basically says this is how it works this is how they worked and how they had uh mathematics is also involved that ben rich talked about the fact that they had theoretical physicists working there and that there was a problem uh general wesley clark when we contacted him we ambushed him with what i call the briefing question have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? If so, when was it? And what were you told? He basically says, we've got to work on our higher mathematics. And he had sort of made the statement that he believed we could go past the speed of light. And here's this four-star general running for camp for president in 2004. And he starts ranting and raving about how he believes we can go past the speed of light and how we got to work on the mathematics. And then suddenly you get Ben Rich basically saying the same thing. There's a problem in the equation and we've figured it out. So you have this mathematical thing and it's just basically you throw enough money at it, you throw enough brains at it, and what Bob Wood says is we're smart people. If the aliens can figure it out, we can figure it out. It may take us 30 years, it may take us 50 years, but we can't have all these preconceived notions, and we've got to actually look and say we believe something's going on here, there's something of value here, and go from there. And that's where, where you get the, the – the, and I think the consciousness thing, I think it's the basis. I think it's basically – it's, it's, it's not so much a physical phenomena. It is these people understanding how consciousness fits in. And the prime example of that is if you know the story about Chase Brandon. In the last six months, this Chase Brandon appears. He's from the CIA. He's 35 years with the CIA. He was the second most powerful public uh, spokesman for the CIA outside the CIA director. He himself admitted that. His office was outside the, the uh office of the director of the cia and he's been under contract for the cia for five years he still works for the cia he comes out he basically says you know i saw the roswell box roswell's real and then he sort of goes in sort of hiding he's not talking about it and he the story gets out anyway he talks about in one of his interviews he says he uses the word phenomenology and to me, as soon as he said that, I knew he was on the inside, that he knew what was going on. Because if you take a look at the CIA, there's all these stories, and I follow these. Anybody I think that knows something, I chase. And I chase these guys like Ronald Pendolfi, who's the top scientist in the CIA, who's into UFOs and who's on the chat lines and sort of interacting with people. Kit Green, who had the job before him at the CIA. Uh, and they all ran what was called the, the weird desk or the UFO desk. 
But now, in the last couple of years, the word that has come around these people that you hear them using is phenomenology. They don't study UFOs at the CIA. They study phenomenology. And that's what it comes down to, is there is an underlying element of the universe that we still do not understand. Once we understand that element of the universe, we're going to be able to explain UFOs, ghosts, psychokinesis. It's all the same thing. And there's an underlying phenomena. Like a thousand years ago, we didn't know how electricity worked. You understand electricity, suddenly you understand a lot of stuff. We're just missing that underlying thing, and it's called phenomenology. They look at it all. It's all connected. How do ghosts fit in? How do consciousness fit into UFOs? And that's why it's so important to look at the whole thing rather than just to look at sightings or look at photographs or government documents or anything like that. Although government documents, you, you're, going, you're going to get the black world thing where you're going to come across people who have been inside the ship, who have talked to the aliens and understand how it works. That is one thing that shows up over and over again. I, you're, I'm, you, what you've said earlier about Melinda Leslie, where people will um, say this shows up in the contactee literature and the the abduction literature, uh, you know that that they get to fly the ship, which is b- bizarre. Like you know you exactly. don't get you don't get abducted by a you know a, a jet you know or a helicopter, and then the helicopter pilot says, oh why don't you fly? Um, so this is very very interesting. And then you know what everyone says in these reports is that they don't have to put their hands on any controls. They just kind of sit there in the chair and think where the where they want the UFO to go, and instantly it's there. Exactly. And, we, and so the black world is doing that. They're taking a look at it like a straight, simple problem. There's something here that we can develop. They work on it. They throw money at it. In the UFO community, we got this division. You've got the abduction people, the main abduction people, who say, Millabs, this is absolute nonsense. I mean, this is crazy. And we get into this sort of thing where we get these sort of almost like dogmatic religious beliefs that this is the way it is. And it's almost like Einstein. I, I, I'm not sure this quote is accurate, but Einstein had described that the majority of people, until the age of 25, they develop what they are going to do, and they spend the rest of their life after 25 defending what they thought about before 25. That we get into these sort of dogmatic things where we're sort of defending our reputation of what we develop, and we are unable to sort of move and be open about uh, what's going to happen. So that's why I say I'm not skeptical and I'm not gullible. I sit in the middle, and I will tell you right now what I think. But tomorrow, if you ask me, I may change my mind, and I will say that I'm, I'm neither going to be right or wrong, but I will tell you today exactly where I stand on any issue. And the one big issue I've always had was, does the president know? And I've bounced back and forth. One day I'll say, yeah, he knows. Next day I'll say, no, he doesn't know. And I, I've, no, I know both arguments. I know all the stories on either side, and I still really don't know. So I'm sort of in the middle, and I say, well, maybe knows, maybe doesn't know. There's evidence for, for both cases. But you've got to be in that position where you're open enough to move with the evidence and not write off any evidence because you never know whether it's Mike or uh, Melinda Leslie. Who knows who's got the actual answer to where this is? So you may be it, – it's like I, I, I wrote this article about Reagan talking to the alien, the story about Reagan telling uh, Lucille Ball that he had talked to an alien. And so it, it comes down to um, uh, your, your – uh, it's hard to explain um, – you you have you have a, a an issue, you have a, a a thing, and you stay in the middle, and you you just develop it, without sort of getting spun out on 
something that that gets you stuck that that doesn't develop it. That, that I, I think it, it can be developed. I think money's a problem, and I but I think the main thing is this sort of people uh, unable to move off their positions. Yes, and yeah. therefore majority of contacty stuff is sort of thrown out the window, and nobody really wants to look at it. When in fact, I think that that's where you're going to find the answer. Yes, and and I mean there was a there was a time when you know you would see lights in the sky, like very early on in the UFO uh, history, in the UFO reporting history. That would you know after the you know in the early 50s, you would see little dots in the sky or, or a flying saucer, and you would write a report exactly, you know. And then somewhere in that this history, you know, people started to say, well, you know, I saw this thing land, and then the you know the the big smart researchers who were you know in front of the of the of the uh, you know sort of thinking they were on the leading edge of the curve would say, no, 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 that's impossible. They, they, they simply don't land. They're little things that fly in the sky. And then, you know, little by little, they would grudgingly admit that, okay, these, these reports seem credible. And then they would go through the same process when they would have little occupants get out. They would say, no, 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 occupants couldn't possibly get out. Yeah, so they would be, exactly. and then, you know, and then this is every step of the way. And I feel like, you know, what we're, what you and I are wrestling right with right now are, is, the next phase of that curve where, you know, I've been to the UFO conferences and, you know, I've seen, you know, people scoff openly about things like channeling and, you know, military abductions and uh, the psychic aspect of the entire phenomenon and synchronicity. But at the same time, you know, I have had direct experience with some of those puzzle pieces. And, you know, so I, feel strongly that they are very real and it you know it's very much part of the the the, the grander puzzle in in the the ufo i keep every time i want to say ufo community i want to put community in quotes you know like you would put fresh yeah. fish in quotes you know like it's kind of a it doesn't it's it almost means the opposite because i think the community you know the you get a bunch of ufo researchers in a in a uh in a room together and i think you're one you know hair's breadth away f- from like a three stooges pie fight you know yeah yeah, that's, that's exactly. And the, the other thing that just occurred to me is you were mentioning this thing about how, you know, one thing happens and then they accept that and then it goes to something else. The aliens are also part of the cover-up. Absolutely. What, absolutely what, yeah. what occurred to me when I when I saw the, the Colin Andrews thing was that the aliens with the crop circles, if what Colin Andrews is saying, are basically leading us along. And so part of my, my consciousness lecture, I go through the whole thing and I say – First of all, to people, because in a lot of the UFO community, it's basically this is all nonsense, you know, channeling, uh, 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 abductees, experiencers. And I say, do you seriously think that since 1947, these aliens have been flying around in mass? Nobody's going to deny that there are these sightings and there's a lot of this stuff that in since 1947, they have not made a contact with anybody. Are you seriously going to try to tell me that they have been quiet and just been flying around and doing nothing but flying around? It's absolutely nuts. And when you take a look at the, the whole scenario from 47 on, you'll see in 1947 to 1952, there was no contacts with anybody. There was no channeling. There was no interaction with, with Adamski appeared in 52. And one of the key things, I forgot, actually, I should be beginning of our talk here. 
Wilbur Smith, when I went to study the Wilbur Smith thing. Wilbur, Wilbur Smith, Smith is the, the, the Canadian the, the administrator Canadian from, from 1950 yeah. to 1954. Okay. Yeah. Now, most people in the UFO community know him for a very famous memo that he wrote. In 1950, December 1950, he writes a memo to the Department of Transport and also to the Department of Defense. And basically, he was a, a guy who was in charge of Radio Ottawa. He was in charge of monitoring Russian communications, you know, the intelligence part, and he was in charge of FM frequencies. So in the late 50s, they were doing FM frequencies along the border. Which one did the Americans get? Which one did the Canadians get? He was in the United States in Washington at a meeting and, and on this allocation of FM frequencies. And while he was there, this a couple of UFO books, Scully's book came out and Kehoe's book came out, two very famous books in the 50s. And he read these books and he was kind of fascinated and then he started asking questions. And basically he gets from American officials. And he says, not from some scientist or some guy off that was, you know, somebody's cousin's brother-in-law or something like that. This is officials. He uses the word U.S. officials. And he basically writes this, which in the UFO community is a very famous top secret memo. And the top secret memo says, flying saucers exist. He was told. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States, two points higher than the hydrogen bomb, which wouldn't get developed, detonated until two years later. There's a group headed by Vannevar Bush. And so in the UFO community for 30 years, we've re- you know, run this memo and everybody talks about the fact that the Canadians were told by the Americans that it was, it was for real and there was you know uh, a group looking at this kind of stuff. And the very next line in the document, and I didn't – I'm – as gullible as anybody else. I didn't read that very next line in the document until later. And he says, and I was also told that American officials are working on a number of line, a, a number of uh, inquiries concerning flying saucers that might be related, such as mental phenomena. This is 1950. This is before Adamski. This is before anybody got abducted or publicly knowledge of abductions. He's saying. Mental phenomena is part of the flying saucer phenomena from U.S. officials, 1950. One of the weird things is six months later, down the road, he's in Ottawa, six months later, down the road in McGill University, the CIA sets up a meeting. One of the people that Smith wrote the memo to was a guy by the name of Dr. Oman Salant, who ran the Canadian government military research and development angle of weapons and stuff like that. He was involved in the memo. He's in the meeting with the CIA. Uh, the British are in the meeting with the CIA, and it was MKUltra, the beginning of MKUltra. They hire Dr. Ewan Cameron, McGill University. He's doing ESP experiments. He's doing mind control experiments. And the whole MKUltra thing started six months after Wilbur Smith writes this memo to the Canadian government saying that the Americans know that mental phenomena is part of of the flying saucer phenomena. So how did the Americans know? I, I spent a lot of time trying to think about it. The only thing I could think that they knew was the original story about the Roswell thing was four dead aliens. Now the predominant view is there was three dead, one live, and that the live alien used telepathy. So they knew right from the word go, from Roswell, from this recovered alien that supposedly was held at Los Alamos in 1952 when he died, that mental phenomena was part of of the thing that the aliens interacted with mental phenomena. Otherwise, how could you explain in 1950, the Canadians already knew that mental phenomena was part of it. So that was an important thing. The other thing where it sort of ties in to this whole thing where mental phenomena associates with with uh, 
UFOs and with spirituality is the Newt, the Newton book. This is the Journey of Souls was the, the famous book that he wrote, quarter, quarter million. He wrote a couple of books later, but the, the main one is Journey of Souls. And if you go to Journey of Souls, and I did this after I had this sort of revelation when I saw Colin Andrews' lecture. I had read this book a number of times. I pull up my Bible. I read it all the time. I, I sort of look at it. And I start reading this book, and it, it just blows you away. He starts talking about... When you die, you go and people see somebody coming to visit them. And so Newton will say, like sometimes they'll see Jesus, and he'll say, okay, look closer. Who is who is it? Take a look closer, closer. Who is it? And they'll say, no, no it's not Jesus. It's my, it's my spirit guide. And so Newton, you'll see he spends a lot of the first book talking about screen imaging, about how these images, uh, people use an image. Like you'll have people that you've had many past lives with, that we're in a soul group, you, I, and a bunch of people that we've had this connection, that we're in this sort of soul group. So they'll project themselves to the other person as somebody that they liked in a particular lifetime. So they're using this screen imaging. If you take a look at, especially if you look at uh, uh, abduction, this screen imaging thing is absolutely there all the time. The absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The same phenomenon. And if you take a look at uh, Newton, he talks about the whole thing about telepathy, and he explains this telepathy thing in the afterlife about how they, the telepathy and how people can talk to each other without somebody around them being able to th- know what they're thinking, that there's a way that they can use telepathy between people, but he talks about the telepathy. And if you go, I think it's page 93 or page 94 of the book, I was just blown away. If you remember, and a lot of people may not remember this, but one of the famous things that happened in ufology was in 1988. There was a documentary called UFO, UFO Cover-Up Live from Washington, D.C. It was a documentary that took place just before the election in 1988. And it was, at the time, it was sort of a rumor. We all thought, was this, they're going to disclose, uh, you know, the live aliens coming out and all this rumors. And basically what it was, was I think it was a thing set up by Reagan and they dropped off a lot of material in this in this documentary. For example, they released in this documentary, they have a flow chart and you can get this online. You can go, it's called UFOs, uh, UFO Cover Up Live. It's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. And in there, they show a flow chart of how the UFO cover up worked and the, the president, MJ-12, all this sort of stuff. And you'll see that on this flow chart, 1988, they show um, DIA having a parapsychology unit. Well, that whole thing didn't become known until 1995 when they shut down the remote viewing program. Like seven years later, it was already in this documentary, and, and so they're 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 releasing this kind of stuff. Now, one of the key things they have these guys in black, sort of in backlit guys, and they're supposed to be the inside guys. And the one guy, the main guy, who's called the Falcon, said he's talking about the alien technology. He says the most amazing thing I saw of the technology was the aliens had this crystal. And they had this crystal, and they could put this crystal, and you could look at the crystal, and it would be dark, and then it would start to lighten up, and you could see images from the past. And you could, and Linda Howe always tells a story about, they they claimed that they could show the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You could look back in this crystal, and you could see events in the past. Go to page 93 or 94 in the Newton book, you'll see the afterlife. They talk about the crystal. I was blown away when I saw this. Or the other thing they talk about in the afterlife is how people are reading this book, where you have this book, and has three-dimensional images in it. It's exactly what they talked about in UFO Cover-Up Live. So you have these... As well as as that shows up often in the UFO literature. I I know that there was a a little book that uh, showed three-dimensional images that uh, Betty Andreessen claimed to have had in her house, and then it mysteriously disappeared. 
Yeah. And so you, if you look at the Newton book, and, you're, and he's, he's, not de- he's not dealing with UFOs at all. He's just dealing with these 7,000 people all telling the same story about the, what they do. And they go to school, and they have these books, and they look at their past lives, and they decide, importantly, what, to me, how I understand the world works, is that you and I maybe decide that we, we got to get together for this interview because we got to do something. And so you, before you're, you're, you're born, you decide – what you're going to do. What, and so to me, when I look at the UFO thing, I look at it. People say, when there's going to be disclosure? I say, I couldn't care less. I just look at it like this. The way I understand how the world works, the reality, this whole thing where you're, they're looking at images and you, you, before you're, you, you go into the life, Newton describes these people and they're looking at these images. And they, this person's going to appear, this person, and they've got to make this connection with this person. And they're looking at these, these images of their, of their future life and people that they have to connect. And that's this synchronicity thing that the, these certain events they know so that when the event happens people go, well, that was kind of weird i mean wow that, that was how weird how that happened and it was all pre-planned so that's the way i sort of look at life and how i look at ufology that you and i as far as i'm concerned we could have been two untouchables born in the streets of calcutta and spend our day in, in the garbage dump trying to find something important enough to, to find to sell to survive and you and I have actually been part of a game, which is like the Super Bowl. We, we are in the big league of all stories that have ever happened. And it's almost like, and I believe we've had chosen. That's why when I had the first UFO sighting, it's like I fell off the end of the earth. The rest of my friends just went on with their life. And to me, it was like absolutely everything changed. And, and my, it was like that cue, something had happened. It was something I was supposed to do, and I headed off down that road. And every time you have a synchronicity, it means you're on the right track. And I've had a couple of weird ones. I haven't had too much psychic type stuff, but synchronicities means that you're on the right track, that you're, you're hitting the you Just go into that a little bit. That is something I want to focus on in, in my uh, – I mean that's something I ask everyone. So you just you just say synchronicities mean you're on the right track. Just, just Yeah, that, that you have these images. And, and Newton will describe – like he, he'll describe these people before you come into the life that you go into this sort of like a huge amphitheater and you watch all the events that are going to take place. That these things you've got to – he describes the one. There's, there's a woman wearing some sort of uh, – uh, brooch or something, and once this guy sees the brooch, he knows that's that's an event. He has to link up with that woman. So you're seeing these events, so that when when it happens in life, when you hit these events that you know are going to happen, it becomes like these synchronicity things where you think it's happened by accident, when actually you've actually planned that, and you 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 are just sort of living what you've already seen. And and he'll even talk about he's trying to talk to the person. And the person says. Don't talk. Don't ask me any more questions. I'm watching this. This is important. I'm about to, to go into my next life. I have to know what these these events are. And you keep asking me all these questions. Don't ask me any more questions. And they want to sit there and watch these events because they know this is this is going to happen. So that's is my understanding of, of synchronicity, where you meet certain people and they, everything just sort of falls into place, and that means that you're sort of going on the right track, that you're doing what you're supposed to do. And so when I have these three big events, that that to me were by far and away, I, I can't think of anything that even comes close to these three events where suddenly it's like inspiration where it's suddenly like, boom, everything pops into your head. Everything changes. Your life just takes a turn and you, you head down that road so that if, if, if there's bad times when people say, well, you know, we're not going to get disclosure. I say we're playing the game. We are in the big league. I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to be part of this. I could have, as I said, I could have been born in Calcutta and living in a dump. I mean, I've, you've, even Edgar Casey said, I mean, to, you know, that 
knowledge not used is sin. That that you have this knowledge, you have this opportunity. So you and I, whether we discover this, whether we unravel this, we are in an honored time that 500 years from now, people are going to look back and say, oh man, these people knew what was going on before anybody else. And uh, I even talk about Angela Joyner, who is a good friend of mine. And Angela Joyner is one of the few people that definitely lost her job because of UFOs. She was told that this flap started in Stevensville, Texas, and she was told to get back to her job. You've the big UFO story, get back to your job, and she said, well, what am I going to do? All these people keep phoning, there's more sightings, they want to talk, and they said, ignore them, and she decided, no, she wouldn't, and then they, she said, well, I didn't get fired, I said, Angela, they gave you a box, they told you to put your stuff in the box, and they told you to leave, in Canada, that's called getting fired, and they basically got, got her fired, and so I said, you may, she may have a lot of sort of bad things happen to her now, because she's got no job, and you know, trying to survive but 500 years from now her great 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 grandchildren will be honored to have been associated with her that that was my great 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 grandmother that you're doing it for future generations you're doing it because you chose before life to do it and that's your job quit whining about it just do what you're supposed to do and and do my my thing is to put down as much as i can of what I know, I really don't withhold very much of anything. And when I will, let me interrupt. I, neither do I. I am trying. That's my. That's what I've been doing on this website, where I've been trying to put down as much as I can. Yeah. And and uh, it's coming from. A, this is actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. But but what I've been doing is coming from a place of intuition, and, as opposed to a place of obviously there's some intellect involved. But I'm trying to ignore my intellect and trying to follow my intuition on this stuff. Yeah, and, and so that's what's going to happen. It's the right person is going to come around along at the right time and see it and pick up on it. It's like I said, like one of the, the really good lectures I heard, or not lectures, but interviews, was the one you did with Melinda Blessing. I've heard her talk. I've met her numerous times. And, but the things that she said on your interview, it's like, wow, you know, it's like it, it really sort of uh, worked together. And that's what it comes down to is if everybody withholds what they have, not, nothing really gets done. And there is a group inside the UFO community because, as I said, what I've done is I've, because I knew sightings weren't going anywhere. I wanted to find out who knew what was going on. That's how I got to the president. I kept going up the ranks. I went to the Canadian government. Then I went to Dr. Eric Walker at Prince, Penn State University. And then he talked about the president. So I went to the president. I thought, well, the president's got to know what's going on. And I'm trying to sort of uh, get that that answer uh, and you, 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 you get to the thing where if you if you don't put it down, it doesn't help. And there is a group, because I've been involved with what's called the Avery, where there's these people who have have intelligence backgrounds or scientific backgrounds, and at some point in their career, they've bumped into the UFO phenomena in their job, and they become fascinated with it. And so they're still doing a government job or they're doing some sort of job, and they're working on the side on UFOs, and they sort of interact with each other. And uh, I've had interactions with, where I've been given stuff by them. And the one I leaked, the guy back he said can't keep your mouth shut he talked to two presidents and i said you know uh he, he was very angry i this was in confidence and i don't want this out my job relies on it and I, okay whatever you know but it, basically it came down to when i established all these people that i was dealing with who all have these secrets it was like mj12 too they were like guys who were like uh hunting 
illegal wild game. And the only people that knew that they'd shot some, you know, rare animal was the, their friends who'd been in their house and seen the animal on, in, in, their, in the rec room, on the wall. That these people were, had all this material and they would defend me. You got to do this quietly. You got to do this on the side. And it was like they're, they're sort of like insiders, rich type people or, you know, with a lot of uh, inside knowledge and they're going to figure it out. But it's, it's a selfish thing. They're figuring it out for themselves. You and I will never benefit by these people. And there are a lot of these people that I know around who have a lot of answers. But because they're working on it with their own little group, you and I will never hear about it. Which So what does that help anybody? That's my thing is that I'm going to put out as much as I can of what I have, hoping that it will inspire somebody. Someone will see something and say, that's the piece I needed. And I basically, I thought before, maybe not as much now, but that if everybody took what they had to put on the table, it would all be solved. Hey, hey everybody. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. We were breaking up just a little bit with the Skype thing here. Let me just, before we, I agree completely with everything you're saying. Let me just, I've been uh, writing notes furiously as you talk and you, you and I share one thing. We both talk really fast. So, um, uh, so you just, the, the, I just want to share one little thing that, that, uh, about, um, a report that uh, that I've heard more than once, which is the gray aliens will abduct someone, take them on board a ship. They will, uh, and sometimes I've even heard it described as they will have to touch a gray box. And so they, the, the little gray aliens will present them with this box. They will touch it. Immediately they'll have an outer body experience, just poof, like an you know, OBE. Yeah. And then they will go through the death process. They will go through the mystical death process of going through the tube and th- into the light. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they will meet God or whatever, meet some divine presence that we could call yeah. God. And then, um, you know, at one point, you know, they'll, they'll come back. And then the little gray aliens will will basically interrogate them and say, you know, what happened on the other side? And then they will use little mind scans. And it almost seems as if we as humans have an ability to transcend that veil in a different way than these than these aliens. I mean, that's yep. what I infer from it. So, um, you know, th- the implication is that we, humanity, has some innate ability some innate gift that they don't have and that is 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 a part of the overall mystery of what they're here to i don't know if it's all of it or if it's a tiny part but that that is a very curious clue and i mean that sort of to me it ties into the consciousness aspect and once you get into trying to define consciousness you know if there's all these blurry overlapping things start to invade like you know spirituality and esp and synchronicity and intuition and you know what the meaning of a soul is and what the definition of god is so um i this is this is an amazing thing to to talk about uh so I just wanted to like I wanted to share that one little thing, and then hopefully the yeah. Skype thing will will uh, have wound down its little interruptions that we were getting. Yeah, and and that is something that's important. You talked about this this thing where they're trying to use us if we can get through the veil to learn stuff from us. It's the same thing with emotions, where they don't have the emotions. They're trying to pick up on us. How does how does this emotion thing work? Bonding with the kid, giving you the kid, and you get these things where the same thing's happening all the time where the woman is given the kid we're playing with the kid and this kind of stuff and that's why i'm saying if i I don't know if anybody's done any studies on the 
on the, the the gray box type stuff. But that's what I think we have to start doing is we got to look at those things and start somebody cataloging all that stuff so that you can determine something very concrete rather than it, it's sort of a story that that floats around. And everybody sort of has sort of heard it and nobody's really done any research to say, what does that actually mean? Is that, you know, is that true? Because there is that, that connection, that, that mental connection, which uh, the aliens use. And you can see other things that, you, that abduction researchers have used that know that haven't sort of tried to bypass it. And that's the thing about where you set up the camera. You say, well, you know, the, the person's being abducted. Very simple. Let's just put a camera in the room. And then you, of course, you see on the camera, the, the, the person gets up, goes, turns the camera off. The abduction takes place. They come back and you can see the, the person has turned the camera back on and gone back to bed. And so it's the idea that the aliens are sort of inter, they, they can read your mind. So if the abductee knows there's a camera, the aliens know there's a camera. And it's that whole aspect that we sort of know that this is going on. We know there's this connection, this consciousness connection, but nobody's ever, I don't think he's ever done a study to actually look at that whole thing. Is that really going on? This thing with the camera, with, with can the aliens read the mind, or this thing about emotions that I think if we do these studies, um, I, I think we'd, we'd gain an awful lot more than we would by watching things fly around and, oh, and yeah. looking looking at photographs and uh, videos that 90% of them are, you know, people just trying to, you know, fool everybody and show how good they are at doing video stuff, you know, put it on their resume and stuff like this. So no, no, as far as doing studies on this stuff, I mean, you know, in a way, you know, between the, you know, the UFO researchers like Bud Hopkins and, and many others, there is a wealth of information. There's a ton of information that we could, you know, tap into. Uh, and, you know, and then also every, Oh, you turn the clock back 10 years, you know, that you could easily put 200 books on your bookshelf written by abductees telling their firsthand story. Um, now it's 2012. Um, I found, I don't know what I'm up to, like 35 or something like that, 35 different first person blogs, you know, basically people writing first person in their own, you know, words. Uh, about their contact experiences, about their abduction experiences, these are completely unedited. It is very interesting. There's a divergence when the when the researcher goes to get the data. You know, they they whatever. We're obviously all human. We all have our our you know our flaws, and we are going to be subjective about some things and not about others, and um, and objective about you know it, it's all mixed up. So each individual researcher is going to just let some data points fall out of the wayside. What happens when you get the, the first person contactees or abductees writing their stories down in a book form, in an online blog form, you get uh, what amounts to just basically raw data. In a book, you might get someone saying, you know, um, 10 years ago I was abducted and I woke up in the morning and this, you know, here's the reaction I had. And, you know, it takes 10 years to write the story, to come to terms with it, to get a publisher, to get it put on the bookshelf, and then who knows if anyone's even going to read it. Now, with the advent of the internet, which I find is a fascinating tool in ways that I never would have expected, um, you know, these first-person narratives are appearing, and instead of saying, 10 years ago I was abducted, and, and here's the reaction I had in the morning, you can open someone's site and they will say i was abducted last night here's what i'm experiencing right now and the immediacy of that is uh you know there's a power in that and um 
I mean, what we're talking about, I think I'm quoting Jacques Vallée here, is that, um, you know, this is college-level statistics. You know, all that's all the data is out there. I mean, it's all out there. And, and when I'm not talking about secret data that you have to go to an archive and hopefully, you know, glean, yeah. you know, read things between the lines, I'm talking about, you know, stacks of books, you know, file cabinets full of what abductees have said, uh, you know, online resources. People will, you know, you can just pick up the phone and call these people. They'll they'll answer. And um, so, so you know, the, the data is already there. We have a wealth. We're flooded in it. It's, it's, and that's almost the problem. There's too much data. Uh, and it doesn't take, well, from, from my point of view, where I've, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't even tell you how many UFO abduction books I've read. I mean, my, my bookshelves are sagging under the weight of the UFO abductee books that I've, that I've collected and read over the last couple of decades. Um, you know, a very clear picture on two levels, two levels, a very clear picture is showing up in my head. You read the same story over and over and over again with different variations. On the same time, there is so much mind control. There is so much, I'm going to use the word theater. There's so much deception. There's so much theater. There's so much uh, screen memory. Uh, you know, So you could make the argument that the entire abduction phenomena is somehow a screen memory. I don't think that argument holds up very well, but you could go down there that a great amount of it is is somehow theatrically presented into the mind of the abductee uh, and then so uh, and then I have my own very fleeting experiences that that have forced me down this path and made me such a such a you know whatever weirdo zealot about this stuff where I I you know go through the effort of immersing myself through this stuff. Um, yeah. So, but the thing is, where, where do we go with this? I mean, you have you have all this material, and that's why I think I say it to ufology: we we have to make a move on this. We got to do something with this. And even when you get to screen imaging, I, you know, the Jim Sparks story where he claims, you know, he he realizes what's going on. He was able to shake off the screen memory and all this kind of stuff. And Newton has the same thing, where where you can see Newton's work that he's dealing with screen imaging all, all the time. And he talks about techniques to bypass this, this screen image to get to what's actually going on. That, for example, when he, you know, every time Jesus appears, he knows it's a screen image. That it's, it's based upon the aliens are giving you what's going to comfort you. The same as when you die, you're going to be given a screen image that's going to comfort you. Uh, so, so there's this method, but to get by it, that we have this material... And when when I see ufology, I see you have uh, you have the first the outside world who thinks ever, we're all nuts. I mean, this is it's interesting, but we're all a little bit uh, you know uh, out, of, out of our minds. And then you get the the abduction community who says, "No, this is this is for real." And I still remember at at Laughlin, and you you may have seen this lecture where uh, Bud Hopkins gives this lecture, which was just a horrifying lecture, where he basically stands up and says. Uh, you know, contactees, it's a bunch of nonsense, and I'm going to, you know, he was getting old at the time, and it was like, I'm going to call a spade a spade, and it was like, wow, I couldn't believe what he was saying, and basically, you know, everybody before 1962 was lying, you know, and that's the image, not just Bud Hopkins, but a lot of people, is that when you get the 1950 contactees, they're all, everybody's making it up. It, only people started telling the truth was in 1961 when the greys appeared, and then it, suddenly everybody's telling the truth. And so I think you have these sort of roadblocks where the the, uh, the abduction community will say, you know, these people are, are lying, and there, it comes down to there's only two races in the universe. There's us and the greys. 
And anything outside the grays, if you're talking to a, a blonde, then you're you're crazy. So we have these sort of roadblocks where the people who understand the sort of the, the whole concept, like you or I or people, somebody has to step up and start to uh, analyze this material, the same as the black world's doing, as, as Les, uh, Melinda Leslie said. The, they get it. They basically just take it as a phenomena and figure a way to, you know, rehypnotize the person, use drugs, get get in there, get past the screen memory, and get to what's actually going on. And the UFO community hasn't done that. We were sort of, sort of like when you go to conferences, everybody's it's like a hobby. Everybody goes there that listens to the stories. It's all very interesting. Everybody goes back and takes their kid to the baseball game the next night, or good gets back to work they go back to their regular life that it's a hobby that there's really no hardcore research on this very important part of reality that we we know you and i know that this is part of reality and it's a very important part of of how the world works and that's why i'm saying somebody's got to step up and start doing it now i don't know how you do it because one of the big problems is money it's somebody who's open enough to not sort of reject you know, one half of the, the evidence that's coming in. And that, that, as I said, with the abduction researchers, sometimes you get that, that we'll look at this, but we're not going to look at this. Exactly. And I mean, and, and I ever, you know, so, so my thought is, you know, we're all guilty of that. I do it. I do it, you know, unconsciously, oh, yeah. you know, I'm sure like the fact that we're human, like, I, you know, anyone, sure. any researcher, any scientists, you know, would, would be talking about these same flaws in human nature and the infighting with the people who study, you know, who knows, you know, honeybees, you know, I'm sure they're like infighting within that community of scientists. Um, and, you know, the way I've tried to proceed forward is I feel that everyone brings someone something to the table. Um, exactly. And, you know, in all I can do is be as open-minded as I can be and 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 be aware. I talked to Leo Sprinkle one time, and I asked him, because this was just when I was starting to get into the, my role. I don't even know what I'm called. I, sometimes I call myself a researcher. I don't know if that's right. Um, you know, I guess I'm researching myself in a way, and I'm doing it through these kind of interviews where this – I say this in almost every interview – where this is therapy for me. I do these interviews for completely selfish purposes, for me to help to help me wrestle with these big ideas. Um, I asked Leo Sprinkle, I said, like, how do you, how do you come to terms with, with – with trying to be objective as you step into these things. And he says, Oh, you can't be objective. It just, just, you have to know going in that you are not objective and that you are completely subjective. Well, maybe not completely, but you, you know, that there's an element of, of your own bias that is going to come in completely or mm-hmm. your own um, eagerness to follow certain threads. You just need to know that going in and look at it and be aware of it. And I think that, um, you know, I, I disagreed. I, I was there in the audience when Bud gave that lecture um, and I had actually, uh, some months before, uh, Bud attempted a hypnos- hypnosis session with me. I feel like, I don't know how many hours I spent with Bud. You know, I spent a few days uh-huh. with him. Um, I okay. felt like I got very close to him. I trusted him. Uh, at the same time, you know, I realized that to me, some of the things he said was based on his own personal bias. Um, I recognize that that's not a flaw. He's a total human. Uh-huh. And then I can, I can move on and then take, you know, what amounts to the very powerful and strong conclusions and research that he's done and work with those. And all we can do is just, you know, 
build on the you know work on the shoulders of of the folks who've come before us and you know there's a lot of good work that's been done and yes you know what is the the next step my thought is that that and i said this before in a way that that you know disclosure whatever that means i don't even know what it means it's so it's a it's a fantasy word for me it just it doesn't have any real meaning to me but what will happen is that little by little the the change in humanity is going to take place from the grassroots up. It's going to happen from the bottom up. And all I can do is proceed forward doing the best work I can with this funny little podcast series, these little audio interviews, and then hopefully that that will create a little ripple in the pond that others can can work with. I was actually, when you said you had listened to that Melinda Leslie episode and you found good information on it, that made me feel great because that that's my goal when I do these things is to make sure that this stuff stays out in the public arena where people can access this information and hopefully glean important information and then you know they can take the ball a little farther down the down the you know down the field yeah yeah i agree uh like the way i would see yours is yours is the same with me that if someone said to you uh okay you got you can't do this anymore you got to stop i mean it's like an addiction you you have to it's like that's my impression that before you're born, you've decided this is going to be your role, and you're in it, and it doesn't matter if anybody else is in it, you're doing your thing. And that combined with the fact that when I talk about disclosure, I say when when it's like um, the aliens are – like when you've done your homework, when you've passed all the tests, that's when disclosure will happen. Not, till, not because it's, it's interesting, we need disclosure, when you've got gone through this whole thing. And what I've seen is – the aliens have made contact in the 65 years that they've been here, and they've also gone through a series. I describe it like turning pages of a book. That I've been in it long enough to know that prior to 1980, there was no discussion about crashes, alien bodies, autopsies. In the 1940s, they didn't do anything. It's from 47 to 50, there was no contact. 50s, the contact, the sort of the blonde contacty thing starts. 1961, suddenly the the alien abduction thing becomes known. Then suddenly you get uh, the the ground traces. You got these little guys running around with rods. Now there are no human sightings anymore. There are no ground traces. There was thousands of them when I was starting in the 70s. It was all these you know landing pod things and burnt grass and stuff like that. And Ted Phillips, I talked to him a couple of years back, and I said, Ted. I think this is stopping. He said, yeah, basically, it's basically shutting down. It's like the aliens are turning the pages of a book that we're going through this stuff. They're leading us through this sort of stuff. You have the crop circle start. Then you have uh, people sort of realize that there, there's this, uh, you know, the people should be showing babies. And it just keeps getting more and more that it unravels as if they're taking us through. And when the time is right, well, then humanity is, is ready for it. That not until... And so I think in a lot of ways the aliens are controlling the, the cover-up, that it's going according to their pattern and getting us ready. And even Smith, who was in contact with the aliens, they said that he had been told by AFA, who was the main alien, uh, that the only time that they would step in is if there was an actual nuclear exchange. Otherwise, they will do nothing. They will just allow us to stew in our own juice and that's basically what it comes down to is non-intervention, that people, you can't do your kids' homework for them. The kid has to learn. We as a humanity have to learn our lessons. We have to go through pain. That's why God created pain. So you're going to learn to get through it. You're going to go through the trials and tribulations, and you're going to develop without some outside race coming in like we did to the Indians and go and 
destroy civilizations, that the, the lower civilization usually dies. They're just sitting there and watching and just sort of nudging things along that when the time is right, then disclosure will take place. But I think the, the aliens have a lot of control over what's going on. And they are using theater in a sense. Like, for instance, you know, the reason that, uh, you know, what was reported, this is going back, I think, in, right around the era of the of the uh, Apollo astronauts, what got reported was little aliens coming out of their flying saucer with a little scoop taking soil samples. Yeah. And there was no other, no more iconic image in all of human history, in a way, than the Apollo astronauts standing on the surface of the moon with their little scoops. And the reason they have little scoops is because they're, Spacesuits were so ridiculously awkward that they couldn't bend over and and take a you know take a handful of dirt. They had to have a long scoop, uh, you know, to to dig up the soil because they would have fallen over with their big clunky spacesuits. You know, the little agile greys could have easily if they wanted. I mean, whatever they could have sent a robot. Who knows? You know, I mean, yeah. why were they? Why on earth were they out there with a little thing? They, they that was theater. That was yeah. somehow trying to get us to wrap our minds around like so like they we can say oh they are us they are doing the same thing that we're doing that may not be that was obviously what they, we they wanted us to infer now for me you know this continuum just keeps on going you know like we're at one we're we're not at the end of it right so it's just going to keep on going who knows maybe a thousand years maybe six months whatever we're just a couple months yeah. away from 2012 uh, you know the december 21st yeah. you know yeah, psychic world, yeah. zap yeah so so um so it might happen, you know, who knows when it'll happen, but but we are not at the end of that continuum. And I am personally, I recognize that and I and I I I am drawn to the most bizarre stuff. I am I'm like I think that's where the on one level that's where the fun is, right? It's really seductive. Like, whoa, this is a totally weird story. I'm gonna follow it. I'm gonna just like dig into it a little bit. I'm gonna make a couple phone calls, I'm gonna try to get a hold of this person who told me this you know, who you know, shared this completely insane story. Oftentimes it's I don't find it through a news service, I'll find it through some sort of synchronistic ways. And those extremely bizarre stories are the ones that, that are the most easily dismissed. And I think that that we would be doing a disservice to our own Oh, I don't want to say disservice to humanity. That sounds so lofty, lofty, but I would say we're doing a disservice to our own curiosity by ignoring, by dismissing outright, you know, by saying, oh, channeling, that's so stupid. You know, why would you go down that avenue? You know, and I've just, I've confronted these extremely strange stories, and I feel that that, that, cutting edge you know that's that's the that's the prow of the ship as it pushes through the ocean um you know those very strange stories is is where the next phase of this whole thing is happening you know one of the things that so so you're not getting landing traces you know like uh um what's his name ted uh ted phillips Phillips, yeah. yeah he said he was very he said the landing traces came either in a tripod shape three and they were all matched the same measurements or in a in a in a what would you call four indentations in the ground and they all match the same uh you know dimensions so that's very i can understand that right helicopters land with little landing things and um but what's happening now is we are being confronted in the literature and i've had my own personal experience with seeing little glowing orbs uh in in a home um i saw one in my bedroom uh it's a long story i won't get into it now but um this seeing it it is it is ethereal this little orb is is like it's not even it doesn't even look like a glowing light bulb it's it's much more 
I don't want to say psychic, but it almost doesn't it almost doesn't conform to our reality. This little orb was was tucked in close to to the roof line of my loft, <laughs> and um, it was dark in the room, and the the little orb was glowing blue. But it wasn't projecting any blue light against the loft where it was. I mean, it was three-dimensional. It was right there. I could see it, you know, like with my binocular vision. I could totally pinpoint it in the room. And, but it, but it, it was, it wasn't, it was bright enough that it should have been creating a glow on the wall, on on the roof. It wasn't. It was, so I was confronted with something that was absolutely entirely, beyond any physical reality that I can even comprehend. And I'll, and I'll tell you, my reaction was to, um, I was, this happened in my bedroom, and, the, and I was, my reaction was just to go, huh, and then lay my head down on the pillow and go to sleep. Um, and, that, and that also shows up over and over and over again in this, you know, this literature. So, um, and one of the things that's also happening, that's happening right now at the weird cutting edge of this stuff, is that uh, the missing time experience that, that the term Bud Hopkins coined in the mid-80s yeah. or early 80s is no longer taking place to the same extent that it was. There's still abductions that are taking place, uh-huh. but the missing time aspect has changed. What is happening now is that there is a very confusing, almost looped time where people will be, in essence, they won't have the missing time, but somehow something will be uh, implanted into their experience. Uh, You know, some researchers have done some stuff where the abduction took place and that the car where the abduction took place was photographed in a uh, parking garage. At the same time, it got a ticket Oh yeah, uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a at a place along a beach where the car was parked. So yeah. the car was in essence in two places at once. They could interview the cop. They had the 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 time counter on the on the video camera. The cop wrote the time on the ticket. Um, it's divergent in a way that that stretches my mind. I can't remember who it was in the UFO lore, but some one of the original researchers after struggling with all the data basically said UFOs are here to make us think. And, um, you know, so we, we've jumped past the little landing things in a, in yeah. a, in a field and now we've jumped ahead and we're seeing these little orbs and the, 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 uh, you know, the issues, I guess what, what I'm engrossed by and fascinated by is what is just on the other edge of that line where we're about to step into the next terrain, the next, uh, uh, the next, you know, just farther down that continuum, you were just saying that they're turning the page. I want to peek down. I want to. I want to get that book and peek a few pages ahead. Yeah, and and that's what that's what you're you're trying to do is move it along. Let me tell you an interesting story. Uh, see, see, that's why I say when you share material, then you sort of get the sort of uh, wow. You know, I'll tell you a story. You talked about the little blue orb. I was involved in 75, 76 in these sightings. In 75, they were flying around. There were big, big objects were flying around, and people were trying to photograph them. In 1976, the year after, uh, we, were, we moved about eight miles east of the town, and I've got a friend of mine who's out with his camera, and he's going to photograph, and these things are sort of flying around, and he's going to try to photograph them. So we're sitting there on the corner of this road that goes around, this major highway that goes around. We're sitting there, and... Um, um, no, nothing's flying around and then it gets dark and we look around and there's these orange 
balls all around. And I said to him, I said, Jim, this is kind of weird. This is like farm lights, but their farm lights are white. These things are like orange, like oranges, like just totally orange. So I said, well, let's go and see what these things are. So we, we go down and in, in Manitoba, we have these mile roads. Every mile, you have a, a mile a road that goes completely north and south, completely straight, east, west. So you can actually tell where you are, uh, how many mile roads you've gone west or east or south or whatever. So anyway, we go to the second mile road and we look down the road and this thing, this orange ball, it looks like a small orange orb sitting in the middle of the road. And I said, wow, look, it's sitting in the middle of the road. Let's go down. So we drive down the road. We turn the lights off. We go down. And the, this is in the middle of nowhere. There's no houses. There's one farm in the corner. And then there's nothing for eight miles. So we're going down this mile road. We get to the first mile road. And the thing seems, seems to be the same distance down the road. Second mile road. Things still the same distance away. And we're going like, this is kind of weird. It's, it's not a car coming towards us because it would have passed us by now. It's this orange ball. So anyway, to make a long story short, we get down eight mile roads. And there's, it, it's in February 1st, 1976, there's water in the fields. All there is is the road. There's water. The field's completely covered because it's one of the flattest areas in the world. So when the snow melts, the, it's, it's maybe six inches deep or two inches deep, but it covers the whole field. So we're driving along and we're at this bridge. And we, we see this thing and now it's, it's a drainage bridge, a ditch that runs to pull the water off the field. And there's a sort of like a, a wooden bridge that goes over this, over this uh, sort of drainage ditch. So we go and I go, Jim, the thing's sitting on top of the bridge. So we, we go up to the bridge and the thing's gone and we're looking around. Now it's not in front of us. And we said, it's got to be underneath the bridge. So we're trying to go under the bridge and there's snow and the water's almost right to the top of the bridge. And we're looking, we can't see anything. So we keep going. We're going towards the American border. We head down the south. We go down this, this incline and we get about a quarter mile. And I turn around and say, Jim, it's back at the bridge. Turn around, let's go back. So now it's on the other side of us. We're heading north now. We go back up on the bridge and I said, and it's gone. I said, got to be here. It's got to be under the bridge. So now we're really looking. We got flashlights and we're looking, whatever. And I got an eight millimeter movie camera and I still have this film. We go down the, the north. We're heading now into the north. We're heading, we get about a quarter mile. I look back and I said, Jim, it's back at the bridge. Let's, let's walk this time. Instead of uh, um, driving, because it seems to know what we're doing all the time, let's walk. So we go and I take seven steps and then I take three seconds of film. Seven steps, three seconds of film. Things still sitting there. We're getting closer, closer, closer. And we get to the point where we're at the bottom of the incline to the bridge. And I'm close enough now where I can actually make a run. And this was written up in the newspaper there. I was going to I was gonna jump and I was going to hit it. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to actually touch this thing because it was there. And I can still remember to this day. It's like it happened yesterday. And I said to him, I said, Jim, look at this. It's there. I, I'm going to take I'm going to run. And I looked and you described the orb. All I can remember, and this is 1976 has happened. I remember it clear as day. It was bright. We had a set of binoculars. It was so bright. And we're maybe 50 feet away from it, somewhere in that range, maybe less, maybe more. And it's sitting, and there's wooden railings on the side of the bridge going across this bridge. And this thing is no more than about two inches from the edge of those railings. And it was so bright in the, in the binoculars. You couldn't look in at the binoculars. We looked, and it, it, we called it a dead light. There was just a slight glow on the railing. And I can still, when you described this thing about it, didn't cast anything. I'm looking and I, all I can think this day, I'm going, it's not lighting up the bridge. It is so bright. And it's, why is it not lighting up the bridge? It was just, just a glow on the, on the, and it's two inches away from these wooden railings along the side of the bridge. And I'm thinking like, this is weird. Why, why is it not lighting up the whole, the whole, it should have been like daylight. It was so bright. And so just as I'm going to run. I says, I'm going to run. He says, no, hang on. He says, I think there's one sitting on top of the car. And I go, what? 
And so I, I give him the camera, and I take the binoculars, and I look, and the car's now in the north, and we're looking into the north, and it looked like the sun coming up in the north. And it was on top of the car, this orange half-sphere ball, and it was sitting on top of the car, and there was this orange smoke hanging down the side of the car. And I go, it's sitting on top of the car. And he took, started to run, and I took about three steps, and I go, oh, shoot. And I turn around. Sure enough, the one at the bridge is gone, eh? Just as I'm going to run and jump on this thing. And then I figured, well, now we're committed. So we started to run. Then it moved onto the front hood. You could see it. It was like the, the inside of the car. It was like the inside of the car was on fire. It was sitting on the front hood. And then it went down onto, onto the road, I guess, in front of the car and disappeared into the water or whatever. We got back to the car, and I can still remember – I was touching the car, top of the car. I mean, I don't know what to do. You know, like I'm touching the top of the car. I don't know what, what, was what's it warm? Going on here? Here's the question. Was it warm at all, the top of the car? Nothing. Okay. Nothing. No indication whatsoever. And anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, and I really don't know what to do. I mean, this is, I just got into this thing. You know, I've got no scientific background. So we, we get there. And then I says, I look back. And I said, Jim, it's back at the bridge. Let's go back again. And he says, no, no, I don't want to go back. I said, come on. We got close. I want to jump on this thing. I want, I want to actually touch this thing. Come on, let's walk back. We got close one time. And we looked around us, and there was oranges everywhere, all around us. And it was sitting above the water. So it looked like two oranges, one on top of another. But it was a reflection off the water. So you could see these, like, double oranges all around us. And it was completely surrounded by these orange lights. And I go, come on, let's go. And he wouldn't go. And it was his car, so we went home. And I remember this is 20 years later. I see him. Like the next night, I should tell you, the next night, he's down there. And he's got his friends, and they're racing down these mile roads because you can drive like 60 miles an hour down these mile roads with no lights on in the middle of the night because they're completely straight. So he's driving, and he, they're trying to catch these these orange balls. And that's where I take people out, and they'd say, okay, it's a car, and it's a call it's going to take, oh, three minutes. I said, okay, let's sit here and wait for three minutes. Nothing would come, and then I'd say, okay, and we'd flash lights at it, and it would flash back, and it would do all sorts of stuff. And I'd take people out, and then people would say, let's surround it. i say, you can't surround it. You can't. It, it's, it's out thinking you. It knows what you're doing. We tried all these different things, and then people. People say, come on, let's go out again. I said, okay, here's a map. You go here, you go here, go here. Go take a look at these things. You can go. I'm tired. I don't want to see them anymore. Uh, they're, they're, you're not going to surround them. You're not going to catch them, whatever. But this this description of this 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 thing where two inches from the side of the railing, and it was so bright, and it was not cast, just a slight glow on, on the railing. And I remember 20 years later, this guy became uh, the public relations officer for a billion-dollar corporation. And I remember I, see, I saw him 20 years later. And at the main library in the city, and I go there, and he's coming out, and I says to him, I said, oh, Jim, how you doing? He says, oh, fine, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going in to get some books. He says, oh, are you still in that UFO thing? And I said, yeah. He says, man, you always were the gullible type. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? You were so scared. I'm not going back to the bridge. What are you telling me? I'm gullible? And you wouldn't go back? Oh, I'm going to go home. No, I'm not going back to the bridge. <laughs> and, and he sort of just backed away from me. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He just backed away. And I said, I can't believe you're saying this. Because usually, you know, you, you can expect someone who hasn't seen anything to say something. But this guy was so scared. He absolutely wouldn't go back to the bridge. But when you describe this thing about the orb, that's we called it a dead light. It, and we saw it numerous times where it just did not, it, it was bright, like we'd flash lights at it. And you'd have two of them on the road, and the one would sort of move off the road, and the other one would pulse, like you'd flash three times, it would pulse back three times, you'd take it from side to side, and this thing would go back and forth like a leaf, back and forth like a leaf motion, back and forth across the road. So we make these things racked, and I on my I think on my website, I might have some photographs, we did infrared uh, where we take the frozen infrared film, we'd race out there, we'd flash lights, and we'd photograph this thing in infrared, and it looks like it's taken during the day. This is in the middle of the night. We're taking these things, and we're, we're trying to do all these experiments and flash lights at it. And I actually had the one when we flashed lights at it, and this is about – I had some 
kids doing science fair projects with me. And this is a couple nights. This is maybe two months later where we're there. And this is a famous story that, that was written up in the papers here as well. I got these things on the road, and I'm showing these kids. Look at these things. Now, watch. I'm going to flash lights at them, and I'm taking the kids one after another outside of the car. And I'm flashing lights at this thing, and the thing would flash back, and it would go from side to side and whatever. And these kids are like, wow, this is fantastic. And, and take the next kid out and put the other kid back in the car and just walk down this road and showing them all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, this thing started to make noise. And it was just a small ball. You couldn't tell whether it was like five feet and a quarter mile away or whether it was like a little tiny ball. It's just in the dark, you can't really tell. It was just a small ball. So this thing starts to do this Morse code whistle. Bzz, bzz, bzz. And I'm going, holy cow, it's beep making this noise. And I'm thinking, there's nothing in this thing. This is just a little tiny ball. And I'm thinking... Oh no! And I, and I look, and sure enough, there's this arc welding light right on the on the U.S. border. And this brilliant arc welding light, and I'm going, oh no, we're going to get abducted. This is it. I got these little 14 year old kids in the car. Then I'm coming home. We're going to get, you know, this. Like I just, I, I've never been as scared in my life. It was just absolute panic. And so I took the kid. Back. I said, let's go back to the car. The one kid actually never did come out of the car. But we're sitting there, and I didn't know what to do again. I mean, this this our light is going along the U.S border and it starts to make the turn this brilliant arc welding light is making this turn and i'm sitting there and again i, I don't know what to do and so i said to the kids i said give me my binoculars and they're bouncing around the car they're screaming ah it comes and they're, they're all excited and it's like oh and i'm just petrified and i can still remember it made the turn and it started coming straight down the road at us it made sort of went maybe 300 260 degrees and then it started coming down the road right at us and it was very very low it's coming towards the car and it moved from this arc welding light to a triangle with two Two red lights in the front and a big green light in the back. And I'm looking at this thing in the binoculars, and I was so scared that I had to hold the binoculars against the inside of the glass to stop my hands from shaking. And I can still remember these kids there. Hey, guys, there's, oh, just excited as could be. And this thing sat right above the car, and it's maybe 100 feet in the air. And it was, seemed to be on a tilt, and it was sitting there. And I'm looking at the binoculars, and in the binoculars, it was the entire field of vision. And it's a huge lights. I couldn't tell if it was three objects, but I think it was three big huge lights on a on an object and it sat there and then it moved it just sort of moved a little bit and started to move towards this microwave tower in the north and as soon as it moved just momentarily the fear went away it was the weirdest thing it was just ooh, bang the fear ooh, okay was- okay so we're jump i'm just going to say so there there's one more of like the the you know it's a mental phenomenon yeah so keep on going yeah yeah so this thing starts to move and it starts to move towards, and then suddenly these kids are still like all excited, whatever, and uh, it's moving towards this microwave tower. And you can see this clear, these three, like, very clear triangle of lights moving in towards the microwave tower. And all of a sudden there's these lights behind me and flashing, and it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is our, our equivalent to your FBI. Sure. So they, they man the outside, the, the, the towns, not the cities, but the towns. So this is a federal police force. And the lights are going, and, and I go, oh. I'm going to get this guy. And they had been involved in the sightings that had been there, and they had gotten on the record. And, and they two of these guys got transferred up to God's knows where. You know, they, they were gone the next day. And so they didn't really want to go on the record as seeing UFOs lying around. So this guy's coming up, and I says to the kids, like, the fear is completely gone. It was the weirdest thing. How It was the scariest moment of my life. I've never been that scared. And it instantly went away as soon as that thing started to move. And, and so I said, I'm going to set this guy up. Watch. And so I, the guy comes. He's got his flashlight. He's coming, his lights are all flashing and stuff, and he comes up, and I roll down the window, and he says, what's going on in here? 
and because it's in the middle of nowhere in the dark, you know, and I say, you see that object over there? And he looks and there's this triangle of lights flying away. And he says, yeah, I see it. And I said, well, we're, and I just ignored it. I said, oh, we're looking at these lights down at the end of the road. And he said, well, what lights? And I said, well, turn off your lights and I'll show you. So he goes, he turns off the car lights and we, we go back in front and the, the triangle is now gone. And he, we didn't bring it up. Just say, you see that thing in triangle? And he's, yeah. And so we go and, and then I, it's nothing black as can be on the, on the road going towards the American border. So I take the light and I flash the, take the light and I go up and down and you see this orange ball come up and it goes back down and it goes up and he looks and I take the light from side to side and this thing goes back and forth across the road and he goes, eh, it's kind of weird. He says, it's probably just a couple guys down at the end of the road having a beer. And I said, well, we've been, we've been chasing it down the road for six, six miles. And I guess suddenly it all came on the triangle, these lights, these guys have been chasing it for six months. I've been written up in the newspaper trying to jump on this one on the bridge. And suddenly he says, oh, okay, I guess we'll see you guys. Didn't know who, what's your name. He says, well, I guess we'll see, we'll see you guys. And he starts moving towards the car and says to the kid, get his license plate number. And the guy starts running to his car. He jumps in his car. The gravel's flying and off he goes. And there's these three kids running after this Royal Canadian Mounted Police car with a flashlight, you know, to get this guy's license plate number. But it, it was it was just weird. These, these You talk about these orbs. We had lots of experience with these things back. And it was the big ones appeared. And then it was almost like they dropped these little, little, Tiny, we called them uh, uh, ground lights. And then when I talked to Wilbur Smith, the guy who ran the Canadian government UFO program, his wife had set me up with a guy who had done metallurgic uh, analysis for the military. They would get Russian nose cones, and he could tell how high the thing had gone, all this sort of stuff. And he had been involved with Wilbur Smith secretly working on gravity control experiments. And he had said to me, it ruined my life. I never should have got into it. It was the worst thing I did. But, but he was into you know reincarnation and all this kind of stuff. He was interested in the whole thing. But he just said it had ruined his career. And he didn't talk to anybody. I was the only person that ever talked to this guy. And the reason he talked to me was because Wilbur Smith's wife had said he lived right where these sightings were taking place. He moved out of Ottawa. He was a bank credit union manager or something. He just wanted to forget the the intelligence world and stuff like that. And so I'm ta- telling him about these little orbs. And I said, well, they're over in Carmen, and this guy lives maybe 20 miles away. And I said, these little orbs. And I, I said, you know, they're there, and I'm describing them. He says, oh, you mean monitors? And I go, yeah, yeah, monitors. I have no idea what he's talking about. He said, oh, yeah, those things were back in Ottawa. We had those things back when Wilbur Smith was there. And they used to sit on the windowsills. And every time we had a meeting, they were there and they were watching. And then I went and talked to Wilbur Smith's son. And sure enough, they, they had these things. And they, they, they um, even Wilbur Smith's wife talked about these little orbs, that they would be there and they would sit on the windowsill and, and they would hide in the ditch. And Wilbur talked about one when I started to analyze him. And Wilbur's wife even told me the story. She said they actually, at one point, they burnt out a row of beans in the, in the, in the garden. And then they destroyed the guy's next door neighbor's tree. It was the funniest thing. The part of the tree, it had killed part of the tree. And Wilbur Smith's wife said, the neighbor came over and said, Wilbur, I don't care where your little friends are from, but can you please tell them to stop <laughs> wrecking my tree? And so the neighbor was just, I don't care where they're from, just stop it. <laughs> and so this is this thing, they, you bring up these orb thing, that these have sort of been around, and I tell a lot of stories. And when I wrote this book, it's called Tales of Charlie Red Star. This thing was around so much, they actually gave it a name. And then I talk about these orbs and what we did, these stories of chasing these little things around and trying to surround them and capture them and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it, it was it was a thing that in 75, when they, when they had this, uh, the Vietnam War was ending, that's what I thought had created it because the, all the missile silos, we have all the Minuteman 3 missile silos just on the other side of the border. So because you've got the missiles, 
when the Vietnam War ended, it was the domino theory, and everybody was trying to figure out, you know, what's going next? Is South Korea going to fall, the Philippines, Indonesia? And it was this domino theory that the communism was going to take over the world. Now they've got South Vietnam, and, and it's going to start happening now. So all the missiles go on alert. The aliens pick it up. Because along the Canadian-U.S. border, there was Loring Air Force Base, Wurzworth Air Force Base, Minot Air Force Base. All the, the bases along the Canadian-U.S. border where all the Minuteman 3 missiles were, they were all visited by, by UFOs. And NORAD documents show this in 1975. And that's when my sighting started. And the strange thing was in 76, these orb things started to appear all over the ground. And I sort of got out of it in fall. And as far as I know, there's never been a sighting in that area since. It was like there was thousands of sightings. Half the town, I did a, a, a lecture at the high school and I did a poll. 57% of the kids in the high school said they'd seen something. And in normal schools, I'd lecture and it would be about 11% or something. Here was 57%. So basically, half the town had seen this thing. Everybody was seeing it. And then suddenly, as soon as 76 comes, boom, it's gone. It's like the CIA took the drugs out of the water. No more UFO sightings. Not, not since. The guy that had the most was the guy that ran the airport. I went back to him and I said, Bob, how many did you have? said 100, maybe 150, because he was right there. He was sort of leading the TV crews in. They were trying to film and stuff like that. And I said, how many after? None. I, I can't think of any. So you get these sort of things where you see the patterns and you go through it, and it's sort of evident that they're watching the, 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 the nuclear stuff. And I'm sort of working on that now with the presidents, that you do enough research. And to me, the key is to put it out so that everybody can see it. And so that when you get this blue orb that you talk about, it makes a connection with me. And then I put my stuff on. People will say, well, you know, I, I had that happen. And somebody's going to start to put it together and find some of the answers. It may not be me. It may not be you. It may be somebody down the road. But to me, it's important to document my experience and, and what happened with me. Because to me, I'm honored to have been involved in this whole thing. It, uh, I just, uh, you know, sometimes it's tough. But I think it's important, whether my friends laugh at me or whatever, that I record this because I know this is potentially the most dramatic, significant event that's happened in human history. Hey, um, I'm going to – so, yes, this is I, – I, I can't put the weirdest factor, you know, any higher than what you, know, what you and I are both dis- discussing, and it seems very important. Um, so this is – so a new development that has just happened in the last few years – um, and one of the things that Colin Andrews did during his talk um, was he came forward and said, you know, yes, he is a UFO abductee. He had actually declared that openly, I think it was in late November of 2011 at a conference, and I think it might have even been in South America, where Colin Andrews came forward and said, yes, I am a UFO abductee. And he talked about the experiences he had in his youth and going through hypnotic regression. Um, and also... Right around that same time, it might have been the same conference, Stephen, the one in South America, and then Stephen Greer came forward and said, yes, he is a UFO abductee. Uh, and I just see this, uh, I, that to me that is really important, that the two, I mean, I, I have some problems with Stephen Greer, I've, I have some real problems with Stephen Greer and the way he presents his information. You know, that said, I think he does occasionally bring, you know, a, an important puzzle piece to the table. So, um but I, I have yeah. strong opinions on the way he, he presents himself. Yeah. But, to, me, then, to me, with Stephen Greer, just to jump in, to me, Stephen Greer, the, the, the critical thing is, that, yeah, that you have to distinguish with Stephen Greer between his evidence. And I've studied a lot of his evidence because he was involved with the Clinton administration, which I spent a lot of time. Everything he says is absolutely true. He will just spin it for his ego 
that he's an impossible guy. I've never really dealt with the guy. He's impossible, like the ego and the all, all that sort of stuff, and his uh, sort of hatred for the abduction theory and stuff like this. That if you take take a look at whether can you deal with the guy, really not. But is he presenting evidence that is usable? Absolutely. I do not think he's lying. He may spin it to to suit his own personal agenda, but uh, I think he he is a, a legitimate guy that should be listened to. Okay, and and I and I I listen to him, but I have to grit my teeth sometimes. Woo, boy, you know when I listen to him. Uh, and then and then Colin Andrews, on just on the opposite, with Colin Andrews almost melts my heart when I'm when I like listen to his voice. He is, yeah. he just projects something so earnest and so thoughtful and and and. Uh, yeah, it just I almost brings me to tears now. Um, so, yeah, so these th- so both these fellows come forward saying they're now I'm just going to confront you and ask you. you so I have talked with uh, uh, Bud Hopkins, for instance, says anyone who sees more than one UFO, he suspects strongly that they are an abductee. And here who's, you are. Who says that? Bud Hopkins who's, said it. Oh, OK. Yeah, and- I've okay. I, I know what the question is. I mean, have I been abducted? Let me sort of go. I would have said till about a couple of years ago, absolutely not. But the event was this event where we flashed the lights at the thing. The thing it turned because what had happened was we were chasing them. We chase. It was going so slow. Lots of times we'd chase them down the road. We could actually catch up on the thing. It was going that slow. So then suddenly the thing turns around. Now it's coming after me. And this thing is sitting above the car. And so. At that point, I can't tell you how long it was sitting above the car. All I know is it came. There was sort of a freeze frame there where I was looking at these things and this weird thing where the minute it sort of moved, the fear just instantly went away. So there is a possibility. I just don't have any um, any recollections of um, you know the, the type of memories that abductees have or the the dreams or the, sure, the weird yeah. the weird stuff type stuff but i i absolutely do think that that it uh, that it was not an accident that i saw these things that these events happened i do have if you listen to uh, uh joe montaldo they have this sort of a you know thing about the uh the blood i have the right type of blood oh you're you're, eyes. you're arch negative as am i yeah yeah, and I've got the green eyes and, and these sort of things. And when I heard him say that, I'm going, oh, get out of here. It's like, oh, this is all I need, you know. And, I mean, there's a possibility, but I don't go there because there's really nothing. I mean, if suddenly I start getting images that I can follow, there's really nothing there. Uh, I just remember them as, uh, you know, sightings and stuff like that. There's really nothing concrete that I can work with or, you know, messages or anything. That's why I said I, in other than uh, – synchronicities i really haven't had any sort of psychic type things uh, or any bump in the night things or things happening around me uh so that's why i i say it's a possibility but there's really nothing to go on now what you do have is a very profound interest in the ufo subject as well as of doing now um you know, you've sort of dismissed some little things and say, oh, you do some research and you study the president's stuff. Um, you have done an thunderously profound amount of research, uh, and okay. I am I am well, blown I, away by sure. what you've done. Well, I agree with that. I, I absolutely think it's it's all part of uh, whether it's an alien plan that this is all coming together that they have. You know, Colin doing one thing and you doing another thing. I, as I said, I my my Bible goes back to this Newton thing where you, I, Colin. 
all these people may have been in a soul group where or we all got together where we decided this disclosure thing this thing event has to come to the earth now whether it's the aliens that are directing us or whether it is this newton theory that all of us got together before we were born and said we're going to make a pact that we're all going to go through this and we are going to uh do you're going to do this part of it i'm going to do this part of it and we're all working together to as this is our role in life either one i believe yes i am directed that as I said, my friends just went on with their life. Absolutely nobody, and I took hundreds of people, no, maybe not hundreds of people, but a couple hundred people out. Nobody ever got interested. Nobody reads my website. They don't really talk about UFOs. And with me, it was like completely off the deep end from day one when I, when I and I wasn't interested before. I just had this sort of interest in, uh, you know, near-death studies and stuff like that. So I, I agree that there's, whatever it is, something is directing this pattern. I just follow to the to the newton thing which i think has so many people documenting it and uh, um i've always wanted to go under hypnosis with newton to see if this is actually a a thing where you get into this real deep hypnosis where he gives the triggers but then you get scared you go like you know well do i really want to go there and i've always sort of backed away from it i i he was at so one of his people was at uh, Laughlin conference a couple of years ago and there was a woman there who uh, I don't know if you saw my speech when I did my speech there she came she was the woman that came on she was playing Hillary Clinton she put on the Hillary Clinton mask and came on stage with me oh I was and there she, I was in the audience yeah so. yeah and she was a, a former Mormon she's got really a, an older lady really interested you know we talk about the Mormon faith and how it goes with UFOs and how her you know she had enough with it and she left and her husband still sends her 15 emails a week or something and trying to get married because she separated and and uh, he married another woman but figures that we've got to get back together this is part of being Mormon that you, you've got to get back and so she's got all these weird stories but she went and I said you know I was talking she'd read the book so she uh, paid the, I think it was 300 bucks for this this long hip, hypnosis thing, which took the whole afternoon. I remember I all I could think about during the thing was, you know, she's undergoing hypnosis. What's going to happen? And she came out after a shorter period of time and said that they couldn't get her deep enough into the hypnosis to go through the, the, the she could go past life, but they couldn't go into the life between lives. And there was just flashes or whatever. And so I was all disappointed. I figured, oh, you know, like... I was going to try it, and uh, it didn't really work for her. And then you think, oh, you know, that's the way it works. You know, it's it, it's like buying the lottery ticket. It never works when when it's time for you to do it. And then when I talked to her the year after, and I was brought this up, and she was just blown away. She said it was the most dramatic event of my life. She really didn't get much into it, but it was like this is like, wow. She just had changed her life undergoing this, and it was only a partial partial thing. So that's my thing. Is I think that that. Everybody has a role and that you, I, all these people are playing this role that even Newton talks about major plane crashes where you'll get a major catastrophe on Earth where soul people will talk about all these group, a group being collected before they, they are born and they're all going to be part of some major disaster where it's a plane crash or something like this and they're, they're sort of being briefed on this as, as they're going. So this is where I sort of look at it where, where whether it's aliens or whether it's I did it before I'm born, yes, absolutely. This is what I was supposed to do. This is part of some plan, whether it's you know a, a spiritual plan or whether it's an alien plan. I'm part of the plan and I'm going to do what I as good a job as I can 
with what I've got, that I'm going to record what I do and I'm going to do as much as I can because I feel called. Whoever's calling me, I absolutely feel called, yes. This is great. This is just great. Now, now I'm, you know, there's a, you know, we, whatever, we're human, right? We're, we're flawed and I just, we want to like separate things into a duality, you know, this and that, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, the, the, what I'm coming to realize it is, it is both and, right? So it's both the aliens influencing whatever you yeah. and I, and it's this past life thing and it's a yeah. soul contract and it's a higher self and it's, um, you know, there's a physical craft out there that you can clonk your hand on and, it's, and it makes a noise and it's metal. And there's, you know, things that your hand would pass right through. So, so it's a, it's a conglomeration of all these little clues in a way. And, and it's for somehow we're down here with our, with our blinders on and, and it's just confusing. So we'll, we'll never understand oh. it in its totality. But uh- Absolutely. Sure. The, the the earth, the more you look at it, it becomes more and more complex. The, you know, the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. Exactly. And so there, it, it absolutely, it still doesn't change the fact, though, that I think that you have to, you've got this sort of obsession for whatever reason, and you've got to do the best job you can with what you've got. And that's where it comes back to this, this sort of thing where my initial start where I still remember the phrase that Edgar, Edgar Casey used about knowledge, knowledge not used to sin. It is, it is very bad for you and I to have tremendous amounts of knowledge and keep it to ourselves. That That's not the way it works. If you, to, to whom much is given, much is expected. So I, I've got this because I, I grew up in a very religious thing. I spent, you know, almost my whole first 12 years in church, you know, it was like I was going to be the minister and I had preached when I was very young in, in, you know, congregations and stuff like that. And then suddenly, you know, got into this UFO thing and that all fell by the wayside. But it's all sort of a part, part of a plan. But I still think that it is something where you've got to do the best you can because you, I feel so honored to be a part of this that I could have you know, lived a hundred years ago when this wasn't happening. Uh, to me, it's, 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 I'm very honored and uh, realize I'm in the Super Bowl and I'm going to play the best I can. That's the way I see it. Whatever the, the mechanism are that's forcing me to do it. I just admit that there is a mechanism behind this. Exactly. We we, we may never know, you know, we may get exactly. fleeting glimpses and, and, uh, you know, even what Michael Newton says may be, you know, like I just keep on thinking, you know, um, as a little kid, you can't really tell, the little kid, you know, where the Christmas presents come from, right? You know, so you say it came from Santa Claus and then there's a whole mythology and every little kid knows that Santa Claus lives at the North Pole and then you mature a little bit and, and, and you realize like, oh no, no, you know, mom and dad buy the presents. And, um, but, you know, I feel like we're in that right now. I think that some of what we're butting up against to is that mythology of like, you know, the, the, the UFO phenomena is presenting one thing you know, the same way that mom and dad presented Santa Claus lives in the North Pole. And then something else entirely is, is actually taking place that, that we are just too immature to, to properly understand like a little kid. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of examples you could give on that, but, um, Hey, just, we've been going at it for exactly two and a half hours. This this time blew by. Yeah. And, um, and I I think this feels like just what you've just said about, you know, the, you know, one of the things that shows up 
in uh, all the little checklists that uh, that a UFO abduction researcher, the questionnaire they ask. One of the questions is, do you feel a sense of mission? And um, and everything you've said, you know, certainly defines Absolutely. that. And and I feel that too. It gets in the way of my normal life sometimes. That sense of mission. Um, but uh, and I and is there anything else you want to say? This seems like a great place to wrap it up. Well, let me just let me just make one final thing. You talk about sense of mission, which is uh, something that a lot of people in the UFO community, even though they have a sense of mission, still have that sort of embarrassment. About As I do, there. I do too. Yep. And, and yet you take a look and people will say, oh, you're wasting your time. This is crazy, whatever. And I just look at people around me to understand how important this is and look at what are people actually doing. It's like Eleanor Roosevelt talked about the, the, the levels of, of talk. The number one thing is uh, ideas. Number the lower is people talk about events, and the lowest is people talk about other people. And if you take a look at what people are doing, it's basically they're doing nothing. They're sitting there watching the Weather Channel. They're watching other people live their lives. Tonight, everybody's watching the debate, and it's like who's the Messiah? Who's going to you know take us to the promised land in the United States? And everybody's living to me a totally meaningless life when i start to look at what people are actually doing you know talking about other people you know just watching news watching sports stuff like that and it's really really gives me a sense of mission when i see that that no matter what they say this is important this is a- actually much better than if i were to just you know sit around and uh you know watch the the latest tv shows or anything like that so i think maybe that's the way the way to 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 leave it that uh, there is there is a mission. It's important, and uh, uh, I think we've we've sort of uh, sort of added to um, people's knowledge. People can listen to this and pick up some stuff, and hopefully uh, we advance other people because that's what it, to me it's all about. It's not just me understanding what's going on because it's totally useless if I just understand. But to add to your experience and to other people's experience, and that eventually. We will learn more. I don't think, and I really don't care whether whether we learn the whole thing. Uh, I just uh, want to learn as much as I can. And uh, I think our conversation tonight has sort of made me feel better about uh, getting the message out. Because you're dealing with more of a, a, a sort of a consciousness uh, um, community where I think there's a division. There's the UFO community and the consciousness community, and they'll have separate conferences and they really haven't you know intermingled and done something together so i'm talking to a a different audience that i would normally talk to who want to hear me talk about the presidents and which presidents saw stuff and uh you know where the cover up and the documents and and you know that where's the bodies and all this kind of stuff it's a different thing and i i think an important thing that uh, I, I'm glad you came along because there's not many shows that are skeptical and then there's you and maybe a couple other shows where they're actually dealing with this thing, which I think the I'm sort of putting it out in the UFO community and I have sort of a large enough audience in the UFO community and I think I'm respected enough that people are going to say, well, even like Jerry Pippen said, like, I can't believe, you know, and he's a big sure, yeah, person. Yeah. He said, you know, I, I just can't believe you were like a level-headed guy and gone over to the the woo-woo side 
And so when people like that, and then he said uh, after that, when I was doing the left wing in Philadelphia, he said, I have to get somebody to go to Philadelphia to, to check out on this. He was actually interested in what I was going to say in Philadelphia. So I think the UFO community by this interview, and I'll put it on my website, a lot of people will say, listen to the interview and say, well, these two guys, they're, they're onto something. Maybe we should take a look at that. And maybe we have advanced the field tonight in discussing the, the, the crossovers between this consciousness thing and abduction and UFOs. And uh, we may get somebody who it triggers the same as Colin Andrews triggered to me, this sort of like a influx of ideas. And somebody may get something that will really advance us by listening to what we're talking about tonight. That sounds great. Yeah, this is this is a, that's a beautiful way to end it. Hey, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, this was great. This was just great. I, I uh, thank you so much, and I will do my best to get this up and on on uh, online. I'll do a minimal amount of editing, just clean up some of the points where we got uh, snipped off by Skype, and then uh, and then it should be up in in a few days. Yeah, I don't I don't listen to any of my own stuff, but I'd like to get the link so I can put it on the website. Yeah, I sure I'll send you the link, and and you'll you'll um yeah you'll be. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure you know. And then there's, I, I have a feeling this will be, this will be great because I, I agree. You do have a have a big name in this in this little pool, this little sandbox that we all play in. Yeah. Um, you you have a, you know, you're very respected. And then I can absolutely see where Jerry Pippen is coming from by saying like, what have you gone to the woo woo side? And yeah. uh, and you know, there's a there's a line, there's a comfort zone that we all have, and and I am all for you know, trying to jump beyond that comfort zone. So just for my own sake, I just find that every time I do it, um, I, I am, uh, I'm glad I did it. You know, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to everything that I've, oh, tried to wrap my mind around, but, um, it is important because it is, it is part of the overall phenomena that there's these, that there's these extremely strange aspects to the, to the, to the phenomena that, um, that it, it's doing nobody any good to ignore them. Yeah, and that's that's why I say it's a final thought. I guess that's why God created pain is to get you past things that you've got to learn in that sense, and created these sort of real mysteries to get you to to advance yourself rather than just sitting still. That you you advance your mind, and you the, that's how the world evolves. Exactly, I couldn't agree more. Okay, hey, it's been a, it's been a delight. Thanks so much. Beautiful, Mike. We'll talk again. Bye now. I'll bye see bye. you in February at the next conference. You got it. Okay, bye. Okay. Hi there, this is Mike. I am chiming in at the end of the editing process, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to tack on just a little tiny bit extra. This is the chatter that uh, Grant and I had uh, just when when we he picked up the phone uh, before I did the proper introduction and then rolled into the show. He talks about uh, a book that is soon to be out uh, through Richard Dolan's Keyhole Publishing. And, uh, and I just thought this little bit of uh, dialogue was interesting. And um, so here it is, tacked on at the end. And, and you get a, to hear uh, Grant, uh, you know, he seems uh, quite dedicated when you hear what he has to say. And I will also add, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Grant here. Grant, this is Mike Cleland. Yeah, Mike, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Just fine. Hey, um... We met briefly, uh, you probably wouldn't remember it, I remember I just came up and asked you a few questions after a mm-hmm. presentation you gave in Laughlin, it might have been one of the last years it was at Laughlin, um, yeah. and uh, yeah. 
So, yeah, so I've been following you since then. I think I probably heard some stuff. I have not read your book, so I apologize in uh-huh. advance for that. Um, it's, but I, not, it's not not widely distributed, though. Okay. That was done in uh, 80, 1990, and MUFON was the f- first book that MUFON published. So they only s- published 1,000 copies, and you had to be a member of MUFON basically to get it. 1,000 so. copies? Oh, that's, that's hardly yeah. anything at all. Yeah. So and it was basically you had to be a MUFON member. They didn't sell in the bookstores or Amazon.com didn't exist in those days. So it's being redone now. So through uh, Richard Dolan, correct? Yeah, but it's I don't know what's happening there. It's, it should have been out last year, but I don't know. It's all ready to go, but I don't. Know. Oh It'll yeah, be out, and it's updated with all the latest, latest stuff in it. But oh, you know what I suspect will happen is um, with the advent of. Uh, you know the digital readers like Kindle. Um, yeah, it's significantly easier to make like an impulse purchase for low money, and then there's no, you know, yeah. printing involved. So um, I know a lot of folks who have been doing really well with self-published, um, you know, books that that would it would be very difficult to like put those in a box and send them off to Barnes and Noble and and then yeah. just hope that they sell by people that's, going to the store. That's, that's the way to go because uh, you know in the in the old days we got very high royalties and it was twenty five or thirty percent or whatever. And I've always been totally disagreeing with anybody who wants to do high royalties. Is to me, it's like uh, if I can sell it for a buck ninety nine and uh, make one cent on it, that's more my liking. That you want people to read it. You really, you know, I don't need the money. I really don't care about the money. And uh, so that that's the the gist of it. So we'll see. I think he may have a Kindle option. We'll see where he goes, but that's up to him. And I'm I've done what I had to do, and we'll. It's up to Richard now. What happens now? Great, great. Hey, um, so I record these. Yep. Uh, I edit them and pub- post them online. I have so so uh you know I have no time. I have no time uh, limitation. You know we can go sure. as long as we want. And conversations seem to have a life of their own. Yep. Uh, I suspect we'll go a little over an hour. Um, and then just you know I'll check in and I I, I enjoy yep. the editing process. So if you sneeze or uh, give away your uh you know yeah most confidential source i can always erase that if you want me to yeah okay um and uh oh do you have a headset yes i'm using it oh great great you sound great good i just wanted to check in and then um and then sometimes skype gets a little fritzy so uh if i need to what usually works is just hanging up and giving it you know 30 seconds and calling back and i can just clean that up during the editing Okay. Um, and if I need to, I might ask you to repeat something if it fritzes out with the Skype thing. So. Sure. Okay. No problem. Great. And I, and once again, the focus is going to be you know more on this, the the uh, consciousness aspects. Yep. And yep. then um and I I'm not sure how much I shared, but the part of the reason I've started my own blog, website, and then doing these audio interviews is because of my own personal experiences. And I am very, very cautious to call them abduction experiences, though I have had researchers call them abduction experiences for me. Uh, it's just, it's like the uh, the implications of that are, are too big. And, um, and then I don't have what I would call the direct memory. But all that said, um, you know, the, the reason I'm doing these shows is for, you know, more personal reasons than... than uh, you know, than yeah. trying to do a, a popular show and try to get commercials or anything like that. I, I don't care at all about that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard a number of your interviews, so I sort of know where you're coming oh, from. Oh, good. Which ones have you heard? Uh, Melinda Leslie, um, Kim... Um, Kim, what's her last name? Cars? Carlsberg, Carlsberg yep. Car, yeah, I heard hers. Um, I guess I've listened to about a half dozen. 
great. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so you're, you're this is awesome. That's that's good to yeah. know. So a lot of people don't have that under their belt when. Yeah. Um, great. I have a bunch of questions here, and I start the show every way, or excuse me, every time the same way, and I'll just say um, thank you for saying yes to the interview, and then we can just roll right into it. Sure. Go ahead. Here we go. 